Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mango Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we are on round three of our review of the movie adaptation of John Grisham novels. Today, we are on the firm. Before we get going, we need to tell the people about our new podcast. Spencer, we have a new podcast. Whatever could you be talking about, a sir? Brand we new don't do podcast new things. Feed. Brand new podcast feed. We're not even talking about a new uh, show that we're going to review under this podcast feed. No, that's not it. This is a, we've gone professional, Spencer. Brand new podcast. It's called the Neversmore Podcast. Is a review of the HBO show, forthcoming HBO show called The Nevers. It is uh, debuting uh, this Sunday, the 11th, so April 11th. It's going to run for six episodes. They're going to take a little break. Then they're going to come back with round two of season one for six more episodes. And on the Neversmore podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Ghana, et cetera, et cetera, anywhere you get your podcast or at mangumtalks.com, you can uh, follow along with us as we review the Nevers. We're going to try to get a podcast out about Monday of Tuesday of every week. Um, following the Sunday where a new episode of The Nevers debuts. Spencer, anything you want to say about our new podcast? No, just looking forward to it. It's been so rare that we, where you and I have a show where we're both starting at the exact same starting point. So often one of us knows the material, has, or knows, knows, knows or has background with the material or has read it more recently. Here, we're both going in fresh, and that's going to be fun. I dare say, other than season seven and eight of Game of Thrones, we have never done a show where we are both going in blonde. It will be a rare and fun moment given how much you and I originally started these podcasts, given our love of just speculating together about what the future would bring. And if you know nothing about The Nevers, The Nevers is a, it's a brand new world, brand new canon, brand new series, uh, not based on a book, not based on anything. It's just a brand new show that's coming out on HBO. And it is, um, I think it's supposed to be like a fantasy uh, story. I think it's set in Victorian times. It's about a group of ladies that have mystical powers. Maybe they uh, are in like another universe type thing or aliens or something. I don't really know what it is. All I, know, tell Jack. You, all I can tell you is that it's set in a Victorian era. It's a mainly female cast. And it's a fantasy series, so Spencer and I are going to lead you through it on the Neversmore podcast. Check us out. Go to uh, that podcast feed and subscribe right now. Uh, we look forward to it. But before we get there, we have to discuss what is John Grissom's both most successful novel and most successful movie adaptation, which may make it a bit curious how each of us have to respond to this particular film and our recap and review to follow. That's true. Uh, we are going to review The Firm, the movie adaptation of John Grisham's book, The Firm. And I have read The Firm. Spencer's read The Firm. I've read it recently. Spencer read it uh, a while ago. We both have now rewatched the film, The Firm. And we are going to review the film. Like all of these, uh, like the other podcasts that we've done where we are reviewing John Grisham movie adaptations, Spencer, that's right, Spencer will re do the recap. He will lead us through the recap. We will do um, a little bit of, uh, I guess, uh, some segments. Uh, I, you know, our segments typically included real lawyer, fake lawyer, where, you know, I as a certified fake lawyer and Spencer as a real bona fide lawyer would go back and forth on the law as represented in both the movie and the book. I don't think there's a lot to do with that, Spencer, because this isn't really about the law. This is. I, I've a, got one point. This is like a an action movie with lawyers sort of just around the periphery. This is just an action film. It's a thriller. I don't think it has much to do with the law at all. Really, no. I mean, you could discuss the idea of the Caymans as a tax haven, which is a big thing that comes up in both the movie and the book. But from a 
purely like legal standpoint, a legal principle standpoint, there's one big overarching issue which we can discuss when we get there. But other than that, like you said, this is a thriller and legal drag. And even this adaptation is more than anything a relationship drama in the middle of a thriller in legal drag. It is. Uh, but before we get there, we will lead, Spencer will lead the recap and I will jump in. I'll try to give you a little con- uh, compare and contrast with the book. And along the way, we'll give you our takes and we'll let you know what we thought of both the books and the film. Spencer, do you want to get started on a recap? I'm ready. All right, fire away. Well, first things first with this film. This is a 1993 film that was directed and produced by Sidney Pollack, the late, great Sidney Pollack, which if you haven't seen anything else that he's done before, the man did a lot of good films, Jeremiah Johnson being a personal favorite of mine. Don't think this is necessarily one of his best ones that he did, but it definitely made a hell of a lot of money. This is far and away the most successful of any of the adaptations of John Grissom's works. And this was the first one that came out. And it's in a period when John Grisham was so damn popular that two separate adaptations came out the same year. This is how much he was just utterly dominating the American literary scene during this period. Yeah, I will say that The Firm, runtime two hours, 34 minutes, going to say a little long. It is uh, got a 6.8 on IMDb, 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, and 58 on Metacritic. And on the the actual fourth movie review ag- aggregator uh, called the Lee Index, it gets a 1.2, 1.2 out of 10. I'm gonna I'm not gonna bury the lead here, Spencer. I'm gonna tell I the people. To hear it. Come on. I don't like this film at all. I was not a fan. I'm not crazy I, about the book, but the book is miles better than this film. Don't like it. It's two hours and 34 minutes too long in my book. I'm I was trash so film. excited when you, when, you, when, you, when you told me in advance you didn't like this film. Because I think this may be the first time ever in three years of doing podcasts together that you dislike something more than I did. I don't like this thing at all. Do you, should I start explaining a few reasons why and then then we'll jump into the recap please let's because i would like to start with you know so i guess it, it makes sense to talk about it at the jump is the casting i thought the casting in this movie was dreadful let me start with mitch mitch mm-hmm. uh mitch mcdeer mm-hmm. uh who is our lead, lead character played by tom cruise all right so in the book mitch mcdeer is a recent harvard grad he mm-hmm. is a former football player. He's supposed to be kind of like a jock. I never got the impression he was supposed to be super attractive. Um, they casted Tom Cruise, and when you cast Tom Cruise, it becomes, for better or worse, the Tom Cruise show. So they did so many things in this film to let Tom Cruise run wild. And, it, and you know, this is 1993. This is the peak of his powers, right? Oh, yeah. This is a they are, man. This movie, period. I'm sure this movie sold 33% more than it would have otherwise because they had Tom Cruise. And that's great for everybody involved. Except for, you know, me as I'm, I'm watching this for, like, quality 20 years later. Because they're... They do a lot of things to show Tom Cruise's acting chops and charisma that I think deviate from the book and are ultimately unnecessary. So that's the first mistake in the casting. Mm-hmm. Second mistake in the casting is, I, I mean this lady, no harm. I oh hope she's having a great life. I wish her well. But Janine Triplehorn, who is cast <laughs> as Abby McDeer, yeah. poor, she never stood a chance. When you read this book... It is very clear that Mitch McDeer is in over his head. Oh, yeah. Abby McDeer is supposed to be a knockout. It is to the point. It is so memorable that when you and I were texting about this, I read two chapters of the, the book, The Firm, and I texted you. I said, hey, Spencer, two chapters in. This is pretty much every law student's like worst nightmare, right? And we'll get mm-hmm. to why I say that. And, and, and you I, said, 
And you we, said, yes. I haven't, I haven't read the book in 15 years. It's been that long, but I still said. 15 years. And you responded and said, yeah, of course it is, except for the hot wife. <laughs> so she is supposed to be an absolute knockout. And that is supposed to, there are so many plot points that revolve around the fact that she's so attractive. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a lot of times in the book where you're getting her first person and she can't even like, she's having trouble blending in. Because even just sitting around, men just come up to her in like like just a revolving door hitting on her. We get this scene multiple times in the books. So Janine Triplehorn, I'm I, if you're listening, I wish you no ill will. I think you do a great. You're 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 seemingly a good actress. You are miscast. I'm not saying you're not unattra- you're an unattra- unattractive woman. I'm not trying to say Janine Triplehorn is unattractive. I'm trying to say that she is not the knockout. Like knock your socks off, attractive lady. A matter of fact, I would say that in this in this like relationship as it is portrayed on on the big screen here, she might be in over her head, right? Tom Cruise, really attractive guy. That is not the dynamic you're supposed to get in the book, and that screws up a lot of plot points here because yeah. Abby is supposed to be super super attractive, and you're just not getting that. And I'll 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 end on the last one, and then I'll, I'll kick it to you. Mm-hmm. And that is another lady who I mean no ill will to her. None. <laughs> two ladies in this film, so I have a guess. Holly Hunter is as not Tammy. Tammy Hemphill. All right, Tammy. so Tammy, Tammy is supposed to be a four, like 40 to 45-year-old, big-breasted, knockout, blonde, former bombshell. Mm-hmm. And that is important because she goes on, she ends up seducing Avery Tuller, which they flip that and they make Abby do it. In the in the movie, and that's a super awkward, clunky scene that doesn't work at all. But but Tammy does it in the book, and she uses her sexuality. Tammy does to progress a lot of plot points in the book and get a lot of things done on behalf of Mitch mm-hmm. and Abby. Holly Hunter, for all a great actress, thespian for all of her strengths, not a knockout. Final thing is I never thought, Spencer, when we did our review of The Rainmaker, if you haven't listened to it, go to The Rainmaker. Mm-hmm. I never thought that I would sit here in a podcast and tell you that Claire Danes did a better Southern accent. Than <laughs> but Claire Danes did a better Southern accent than what Holly Hunter did. Holly oh, no. Hunter should... First off, I can't... When she started it, I was mad. Not at Holly Hunter. I was mad at everybody involved in this production for not stopping her and saying, you know what? We're changing the character. She's no longer Southern. Because you can... Your Southern accent is so bad. You co- She went in and out of it. She, um, it became, it became comical. Like it it was worse than what Claire Danes did in the Rainmaker. Absolutely awful. So we start out in this film, uh, with three very bad casting decisions with Tom Cruise, Janine Triplehorn and Holly Hunter. It gets off on the wrong foot. That's my initial take. I understand. I disagree with you at some aspects of that, but there's definitely some truth to what you're saying. Uh, this is probably, I think we've, we talked about this a little bit, that of all the adaptations that we've seen, and maybe of all the adaptations of John Grissom's works, this is the most aggressively rewritten and changed compared to the book. Of where even just the overall characters and how and who they are and what, and what their personalities are is fundamentally altered in this film to result in a completely different direction with the story and in the ending. And it's really polarizing with critics to what degree they like what is a very different result than what the book is. Some, particularly those that didn't read the book, really like it. Other ones really don't. The reviews I, are... Mm-hmm. I don't know. If you didn't read the book, 
then I don't know how this film makes any sense to you because <laughs> I don't think that it, I don't think it even makes sense. Like if you just, you just keep it on its own. I mean, how it, uh, anyway, we'll get to it as you get through the recap, but I would sure. venture as we go through, just remember that I think the casting was crap. I think they, they screwed up the storylines, but I also posit, this is like one of my bedrock takes of this film, that if you have not read the book, the film really shouldn't make a lot of sense. That's that's what I'm going to posit to you right now. <laughs> All right, we'll get we'll get into the meat of it as we go. But this film starts off in a very similar setting to the start of the Rainmaker. This is a this is a period of the life that John Grisham is fascinated with. Memphis, both Memphis. Well, Mem- we'll get to Memphis. We're actually starting this one up in Boston at Harvard. But it's that period Answer. of where you've got a young attorney that's in their last year. They've just essentially graduated or in the process of graduating. And they're trying to now chart their future while at the same time studying for the bar. John Grisham is apparently fascinated by this period in time of a young lawyer. He writes about it several times. And we see Mitchell McDeer in a very similar situation to Rudy, except that he's at an Ivy League school in the top of his class. He's Rudy with options. And that comparison is even more aggressive in this film adaptation, given how much they want to really in some ways have a similar characterization, even arguably similar result. But he's not, number not top 5% in the class. Number four. Top five. I think even says like top four, too, which is a really douchey way of saying it as well. Um, yeah, for sure. But he is being courted. He is clearly in demand by all the top firms in the country, Fortune 500, with numerous Fortune 500 clients. They want him. They're offering him stellar salaries. They're offering him all kinds of bonuses. They're offering him, you know, box seats to the Lakers, all the kinds of things to try to get a new attorney to join their firm. I can say, honestly, this is not the experience I had when I was graduating from law school. Didn't help I graduated in 2007. Also didn't help I didn't, gra- I gra- didn't graduate top four at Harvard. But Mitch McDeer has this situation. And he's going through his options while at the same time he's working several jobs, including almost the exact same bar scene that we saw in The Rainmaker of him serving tables at a bar. Um, and We don't get that in the book, by the way. Mitch, Mitch is not a bartender. No, the book starts very meteoresque of where it starts in the interview. It starts with the interview with the firm of where the partners are preparing for him to walk in the door and preparing to look at him. And I honestly prefer that to this very much kind of softer buildup that we get here. But he decides that he's going to accept an interview with a small, know-nothing Memphis firm. Doesn't really explain it very much why in the film, but he agrees to sit with him there. And several of the lead partners are there to see him, led by Oliver Lambert, played by, by Hal Holbrook. And they... R.I.P. Hal Holbrook. Did you know he died earlier this year? I actually didn't, know. He was a very actor. Yeah. He, was, he was a very good actor. He had a long run. I think he lived into his 90s, but great actor. Yeah, R.I.P. Hal Holbrook. I, I think he does decent in this film. I don't think they give him much to work with. They, 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 yeah, they, didn't give they, many people much to work with in this fucking film. He's, he's a more developed and complicated character in, in, in the book, including his various perversions and how much they motivate him, which we don't agreed. really go into at all here. But yeah, agreed, yeah. Th- they go into this with completely superior knowledge somewhat as to who they're dealing with and as to how they, how they want to entice him is that they don't even lay out what the salary is at first. They lay out what the bonuses, what the, what the potential bonus situation could be. They lay out that they're going to get him a low interest loan in a house. They lay out they're going to get him a Mercedes and they have the confidence to essentially just place an offer on an envelope and ask him to guess what it is, which is a completely invented scene from the film. And I'm curious about your thoughts about it, about this little scene about making him guess what the offer is by means of essentially cross-examination. Uh, just hack 
hard, hard hack. Uh, very hacky scene. Um, and it's nothing that I think anybody would really do um, in a real interview. And I have a question for you, though. Um, you know, we, if you when you were coming out of law school, obviously you, you said this is very different than your experience. Um, had you been recruited in this way, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I would imagine you'd have been really excited, right? I mean, if they're they're throwing you money and all this stuff, sure, but I wouldn't be. Would you? But but and try to answer, try to put yourself in the mindset you were when you were getting out of law school as much as you possibly can. What would you have done if they offered you the low interest loan financed by the firm? Because I, that that was the one part of it where I went, huh? Yeah, and that's actually I think new for the um, probably partly new for the for the for the movie. I remember the book correctly; they just have low interest contacts with the various banks to do that, rather than being directly through the firm. Um, exactly. Yes, they they, they facilitate they, they sell it to. They're basically a mortgage broker, and they end up selling the loan. Yeah, I wouldn't have liked that. I would I would actually have found that rather uncomfortable just because of how much it would tie me just lock, stock, and barrel to the company entirely. It's like, okay, in the event that it, this doesn't work out, and you know we're lawyers, most of us don't last beyond two or three years anyway. What happens then if you own the loan in my home? That's that was my thought. As I was like, man, if you like, I mean, that might sound like a really good thing, but I don't think that's a good thing at all because I don't think you can quit. You know, it's like, uh, you know, once you're in, you, you can't leave like, uh, I don't know, like the mafia or something. <laughs> well, they offer him this and he, through a means of cross-examination, determines that they're offering him essentially 25% more than any other person has been offered at Harvard. It's, an, it's a colossal offer. It's into six figures. It's something that he never even imagined would be possible. Coming six out figures in the early 90s. A lot of damn money for a new associate coming out, particularly from what is, from his perspective, a no-name firm that nobody's heard of in Memphis, which, as he notes when he comes when he comes back and presents this offer to his wife, is you know fifty percent more than it would be in terms of just cost of living than it would be in it's like New York or some other major city. It's a colossal offer. Throw in the house, throw in the car, throw in later we find out paying off his student loans, which honestly they buried the lead on that one. That's the big one nowadays. It's a great situation that they're in. They're seeing dollar signs. So he goes home to his wife, and they're over the moon. He is. Abby's a little bit more apprehensive about this. And the early exposure when they bring them down to Memphis to get the initial tour really only adds to that. If you were to summarize what some of her concerns are that she has early in this story, what what would you say they are? So the way it works is they bring so they bring them down, and I think at this point in both the film and the book, Mitch is not necessarily signed on yet. Still a little no. bit of a dog and pony show. They they strongly think that Mitch is going to sign up. Obviously, he's clearly very interested, but uh, he hasn't done it yet. I think effectively they know they've got Mitch. They just don't know they've got Abby yet. They know and that they, she's the hard sell. And they separate, and they have Abby go off with the wife of I believe uh, Avery Lamar. Toller. No, um, no, it's 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 the wife of Lamar, the young associate. Okay, yeah. Well, anyway, it's it's yeah. the wife of another associate, and she is giving the spiel Lamar to Quinn. Abby. Yeah. Um, this is a very this is a very like early night, like like <laughs> like it's kind of it's kind of cringy now because it's what? like one woman telling the other woman what the the life of the wives are like. Like yeah. you know, that's kind of what she's doing. And I would say that Abby's concern is that the way it's being presented to her. Um, there are little comments that makes her think that the uh, firm is maybe more controlling of their life, potential lives, uh, if they were to sign on and, and, and go down this road, than she would be comfortable with. There's things like, well, the, 
the firm that really encourages children. And she's like, who the fuck, you know, kind of like, who the fuck is the, the firm to encourage children? You know, she's like sort of blown away that like they're even advising on certain aspects of her life. And and that is true to form in both the, in, in the film and the book. And one thing that particularly sets her off is that Abby is a career woman. Abby has a job. She's a teacher. She maintains her own independent income and everything, well, her own income in the family. She's not a stay-at-home wife. And so when she's talking with, um, I, it's Lamar Quinn's wife, Mrs. Quinn, uh, and Miss Quinn says, oh, you work? Well, you know, the firm allows that. That's another thing that sets her off is that the fuck they get to say about that. Yeah. And, and you know, that you. so it's just these little hints. And, I mean, that is kind of a, um, it's a kind of a pattern early in this book, early in this movie in the book, is that you're starting to get, yeah, it all seems really great, right? Yeah. But yeah. You're, you're starting to get these little hints that, like, wow, this is actually kind of strange. And you know what's interesting to me? Is that uh, that I, that made me laugh? Is that you know it's like this thing seems really good and oh yeah let's sign up and let's do it. But there's these hints that it might be a little bit controlling and a little bit more intrusive into your life or I don't know cultish. Like I just couldn't. I just kept thinking about Scientology and Tom Cruise as I was watching this. I was like, <laughs> Tom I Cruise is when, down. I wonder if when Tom Cruise was in like 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 bringing oh, Katie Holmes. Like to oh, to God. L.A. to some weird apartment complex. If Katie Holmes was thinking the same thing that like Abby McDear was thinking in this situation, it just it, made me laugh. It, there's a few indications early that they can write off is that this is a Memphis firm. It's a little bit more conservative in their ways. During the initial interview, they ask him about his family, which I don't know about you. I have never been asked about my family in an interview, and I'd honestly be put off if people did ask too much about it. Um, even Mitch uh, is a little bit caught off guard, and Mitch no, notably. Never. Mitch notably lies, and this is, I think, different for the book, for the movie rather than the book. The firm doesn't know that he's lying about that. Um, uh, in the book, it's even creepier because they know about his parents, and they don't particularly hide the fact that they know about it, and they ask him about his brother. Yeah. And Mitch goes, well, you just, I just can't, I'm not going to tell you about my brother. Like, he just very flatly he shuts says, down I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything yeah. about it. But it's pretty clear in the conversation. They've already done their background research on Mitch. And this starts a trend for this, which honestly makes this film the least thrilling thriller I've ever seen, or at least up in the top of the list. The firm's <laughs> yeah. not... The firm's not the scary, imposing, insidious organization of where you're never sure what they don't know. It's not a question of what they know. It's that they know everything and what gaps they have you can't even find out. Whereas in this, it never honestly feels like Mitch is under threat. It always seems like Mitch has already planned everything out. He's already ahead of the game. And of course it's going to work out for him in the end. All we, all we get is a brief foot chase and that's it. And this is part of the problem with the casting because Tom Cruise is a very charismatic, very sure of himself guy and that usually comes off in the parts that he plays. And Mitch seems way more sort of... Um, in control because I think of how Tom Cruise plays it. Whereas like Mitch in the book is kind of like a bumbling idiot. Like he makes a lot of mistakes, like, you know, just normal mistakes that, that I think humanize him. Also the folks um, who represent the firm that we see early on, they also seem a little bit more bumbling. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. And they even cut out some of the ones that are the most insidious or the most intimidating the firm. Like uh, you remember Nathan Locke from the book? The, uh, yes. the, the black-eyed partner that just intimidates everybody he's even in the same room as? Yes. I don't think he's even in this. 
He's not, and that's kind of my point, is that the representatives of the firm, and that that first scene where they're like, hey, why don't you guess how much your salary is and like in the courtroom, yeah. like that's goofy, and that makes them seem kind of like silly, and they don't, they're not silly at all in the book. They're no. fucking scary. The overall adaptation, I think this is an overall trend, one of the biggest differences, this is intended to be, I feel, a softer and lighter adaptation than the book is, of where... Characters never feel like there's much under threat, which is an impressive statement given how many murders happen even in this script. Um, what characters we have are decidedly more moral and ethical than they are in the book, including Mitch McDeer. Mitch McDeer is a bit of a corrupt jerkass. He's our hero. He's our protagonist. But he's not afraid to do really shitty things or just have entirely purely self-interested motives. Whereas that doesn't seem to be this Mitchell McDeer at all. Um, the Mitch in the book, I, I'm i not sure is a, I don't think he's a good guy. It's sort of strange. No. Like, he ends up, like, I mean, he ends up in the book, like, running from the FBI and stealing FBI money and stealing firm money and mafia money and, like, jumping ship to the Caribbean to, like, live <laughs> as a fucking criminal. Like, Mitch is not a good dude in the book. This this is an adaptation that wants to give you people to cheer for throughout the script. They want to make Mitch a much more pristine character. They want to make Abby a much bigger character, I feel, that she's in the book. She's an important character in the book, but they essentially give half of Tammy's role to her in this movie. And I don't think it works out that great, both in the nature of the character and also I don't find the actress perfectly successful for that kind of expanded role either. <laughs> You're so nice. You don't want to go. You don't want to say that she's just not as attractive as she needs to. There be. are other. Re I honestly don't think she's as good. I don't think she's a good enough actress to pull off this this expanded role for this. I think she does fine, but with how much more they're giving her here, she needed to bring a more of an A game that I don't think she brings. They she's also weak. make yeah. Avery a hugely bigger character in this adaptation. Well, they got Gene Hackman, right? Who I think I might agree of all of all the actors in this, Gene Hackman sells it pretty well. He does the best. I will agree with you. Gene Hackman delivers a C minus performance, which is by far the best performance. <laughs> Give him in this a film. B. Give him a B minus, man. C minus, and, and that crushes everybody else. Ah, fine enough. Okay. Well, as we're settling in, everything starts out very pristine. Everything starts out great. They got the house they didn't think they'd have. They got the big floppy mop shaped dog running around with them. They got a Mercedes that just shows up and they go on drives together with the roof down. She's settling into her new job teaching. They've got all the money they can deal with. And Mitch is so excited for his first day of the job, he shows up at 6 a.m. Lee, were you, are you one of those people that first day of the job you show up at 6 a.m.? I mean, you know me, Spencer. I know this, but I do know people that do that. I know you do, because you're a lawyer, and I can, I am, I'm a fake lawyer. I'm not a real one. Uh, fake lawyers do not get there at 6 a.m. No, I have never gotten to work at 6 a.m. in my life. I don't ever plan on it. Well... The things we get out of his initial exposure with the firm is that, A, they want him to pass the bar, but they don't want him to stop working during that process. And they're very aggressive about that no part, no no attorney at this firm has ever failed the bar. Which is God, that's over and over again. And I, I would thought about you, like, did you did you get high? You, you started as a clerk right out of law school, right? I, but I, I already passed the bar before I started. See, yeah, that was going to be my question. Is if you if you'd started employment before you passed the the bar, like it would seem, not it would seem like a really bad idea to just constantly put pressure on your on your new hire about the bar. I mean, because they're already. I mean, every 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 lawyer I've ever known, even ones that like are you know more fuck ups than than like you know, are 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 generally kind of like you know. 
like people who aren't who don't take things very seriously, those type of people, they still were worked up about the bar. So it just struck me as I was like reading the book, like wow, you know, Mitch is going to put pressure on himself about the bar already. It's it's absolutely crazy to continue to pour on with this whole no associates ever failed the bar. We have a hundred percent batting average. And honestly, this is something that w- definitely did happen during that period. It was much more normal that you would start you'd start your job permit immediately after graduating. Now, I would say the vast majority of cases are they expect you to take off the first four months after you graduate so that you can study for and take the bar, and then you start at the end of the summer in the fall rather than starting while you're studying or taking the bar. So that's actually an interesting point because Mitch, it is they take great pains to show in the book came from came from not much, right? Not, not it, which is a huge aspect of his character in the book. It's one of the biggest motivations for this colossal chip on his shoulder. We get a touch of that in the film, but I feel like they diluted a bit. He would never have had four, he couldn't have just sat around for four months. Like no, so he's he broke. would have yeah he exactly he would have had to have a full time job um, just to keep the rent. Yeah, you, you either would have had to you know t- tend bar in. Boston while he's studying for the bar up there or start the same way he does here. Right. Uh, as he's, you know, having every single part, every single partner associate at the damn firm drop increasingly large volumes of studying materials on his desk and set his very minimal schedule for practicing for the bar. He gets to meet who is again, massively expanded character for this film. Avery Tolar is played by Gene Hackman, who is being assigned to be his mentor at the firm in terms of actually learning the practice of the law as a tax attorney. This is very much a tax firm that he is joining, which we haven't really seen yet in our adaptations. Um, now, in the in the book, they, they explain, and it's kind of like alluded to in the film, but not really fleshed out. They they say that like every new associate gets paired with a partner, mm-hmm. and they just kind of like it's like it, it's a it's a relationship that goes on for years at the firm. Yes, and one of the key things we see about Avery Toller early is that. He doesn't really adhere to the same standards of decorum that the rest of the firm does. He views it as if he's been granted a bit of a pass when it comes to drinking, partying, whoring. All of it's fine when it comes to him. And he has very few qualms about in terms of hiding it either. One of the other things he teaches Mitch very early is that billing is God. This is massively expanded in the film as compared to the book. Uh... Every single second you think about a case, you bill. This is a quote from the book, so it's coming through there. But that he's trying to train Mitch early that the main objective of this firm is to bill as much as possible, as fast as possible. How exactly you make it work, consequences be damned. I would, I would um, maybe say that that, that, that that might be a little bit of the, the, the time period since you've read the book coming out on that just specific point because it does get reinforced a lot in the book the billing thing it does main reason i said that though is how they ultimately use it how they ultimately use it yeah yeah, eventually but yeah they 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 i mean it's like it's it's repetitive to the point of almost getting boring in the book how often it's like make sure you bill 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 when you're in the shower i I still think about that line from the book about telling me hey if you're in the shower and you think about a case bill it I think about that line all the time just because how just aggressively brazen it is. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty crazy. Although it's what I assume. I mean, you, I know you can't. You can't say anything about this right now. But I, it's what I assume all lawyers do. There is. I mean, it's absolutely fair to say there is absolute pressure on attorneys to bill as much as possible. There is also a lot more oversight from clients nowadays that just say, "Nah, I'm not paying that." And it's, the balance has shifted a little bit to clients just saying, "Nope, not interested in paying that bill. Feels too much." Like my homeboy does at the end of this film. Good scene. Hey, hey, 
you know what? I wasn't going to say anything, but this is bullshit. <laughs> he just completely blows it up. It was pretty cool. That, that's a gr- that is a great scene that's added in this later where the client just confronts him and says, this bill obviously is crap. You didn't do this. We'll get there. Um, one of the things that happens early is that Avery's trying to train him on the process of the law. He's trying to train him what it is to be a tax attorney. Where, from his perspective, the main objective as a tax attorney is to push the law as far as it will possibly go that doesn't get you put in prison. This is what he views as a tax attorney, is that, eh, what's actually illegal is what the IRS says is illegal when we get to argue with them. So, we're going to make these, whatever tax shelters, whatever else we devise, as close to being illegal as possible, because that's what our clients want. One of his main clients makes something like $150 million a year and pays, what was it, 4% in taxes, I think you said it was? It, ridiculous yeah, thing they're able much. to pull off here. Yeah. While this is going on, though, we get some of the first indications that may everything may not all be right with the firm. One of them is, is that we get a brief mention that there's only ever been one prior woman at the firm. That uh, we have somebody, I think it's Lamar Quinn, kind of flippantly saying, ah, you know, she was a bitch, she was an affirmative action hire or whatever else. She didn't last long. And that's just kind of left hanging there and not really fully explained. We also get some mention, some brief mentions by the senior partners, which these are heavily cut down in terms of seeing it from their perspective in the film, that two attorneys, Hodges and... I blank, I'm blanking on the name of the other one. Two, two other associates of the firm are a problem. They've been talking to somebody. They're looking to jump ship, and we may need to deal with them. And then shortly after we have that scene, we find out that those two attorneys have died while on a trip in the Caymans. They were out diving, and the boat sank, and everybody aboard was killed. The boat exploded. The boat exploded. Even better, yes. It, yeah. It, well, and we know, find they, out because Mitch is going to like another associates, or I guess part. I guess this guy's a partner. No, th- th- um, this, this is purposely an associate Lamar Quinn that is assigned to him because he's the youngest other associate at the firm. He's meant to be okay, a younger that, face. Okay, yeah. an associate, but somebody else with the firm. You can see how much I fucking care about the details of this film. <laughs> um, and he, they get there, and like the guy's crying, and he's like, he, "That's how Mitch finds out." And it's the same thing in the book. Like he goes to this like dinner party or invitation for dinner, and he gets there, and the the other person from the firm tells him, "Okay, they died," and you know. In the book, you see a lot of like um, uh, people reacting in the firm to the deaths of these people, and like they're crying. And it does seem in the early chapters like there is a legitimate emotional response to their deaths in a way that, like, I, I mean, I knew the firm was super sketchy, mm-hmm. but I, I they had it, you know Grisham kind of had me convinced that that they they that the firm didn't have anything to do with these people dying. That they, you know yeah. obviously the firm cared about these two people. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because we, we see enough of a rounded perspective of the partners in the book that they are bastards. They are evil people. They are people that do some horrendous things. But they are morally conflicted to a certain degree over what they feel is necessary to do. They're, they view what they're doing as not necessarily malevolent evil. They view it as necessary evil they don't have a choice about, and they're just willing to do horrendous things to pull that off. Yep. Now... The frame of reference for why they feel morally conflicted about that can be douchey and self-centered. Like, I think at one point uh, we have um, the, Oliver Lambert even say that, oh, we can't keep killing people. You know, nobody will ever want to work here before. It work here again. To which I think even Devasher calls Matt on, dude, you're talking about killing people and your moral, your moral qualms that nobody will not, will not be able to hire anybody in the future anymore? Come on. Yeah. But uh, one of the... Uh, two key tensions that starts to really create here is one, the time spent in the Caymans, because they're going regularly to the Caymans as part of both storing records and dealing with clients, because the Caymans during this period was one of the leading tax shelters in the Western Hemisphere, in terms of 
everybody can invest your money and your resources over there in the Bank of the Caymans and have it protected from the IRS. So it's a key focal point in the story. Put that yeah. GameStop money in the Caymans, folks. That's No, you can't do that anymore. The Caymans isn't the same haven that it used to be. But oh, okay. separate issue. All right, scratch that. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about other places you can hide your money later, man. Off pot, off pot. Uh, the other... <laughs> The other big, the other big tension too is Mitch's increasing worries as he starts to do a bit of research about that it appears that nobody has ever left the firm before, and that the only people that he can confirm have ever left by you know non, the only people that have ever left have left in a hearse. In the film, I think they reduce it to three. If I remember correctly, in the book, it's actually four. Um, but he looks over, and it appears that these three other attorneys have all died. Relatively recently, at all at relatively young age, under seemingly odd circumstances, from what he can initially tell. And one of the first yeah, things one the got film, like shot hunting. Yeah, and they explain it better in the in the book. But I think one got shot hunting. One committed suicide at his desk. Another one died in a weird car accident that the the police thought was under somewhat suspect circumstances. Yeah, and check this one out. He he dies in a head-on collision with a truck, like a uh, like a like a U-Haul type truck, like a like a. Yeah. 12 wheeler or something but there's nobody in the truck and the police never do it like the police never even look into that nope there's nobody driving the truck that he has a head-on collision with and the police just never look into it <laughs> what yeah. and in the in the book the, the film the first thing that, the first person that kind of puts this in his head is terrence wayne terrence shows up earlier in this story honestly if i remember correctly at a, at a bar where mitch is, stu- is uh, studying for the bar and doing his work and just kind of puts the thought in his head that, hey, you work for that firm. Yeah, I saw it on your book. Yeah, you started eight weeks ago, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I know these things. Funny how nobody's ever left that firm alive. Funny how you've lost, like, three attorneys in four years. Talk to you later, and just walks out. And, and that's another thing that the book points out, is that he is being sold to join this firm, Lam- like Lambert, Lambert, Bellini or something, whatever Bellini it is. and Locke or something else. Yeah, and they tell him, no one has ever left. We have yeah. an attrition, 0% attrition rate. Now, that's it's another a marketing question. point. Yeah, that's my point, is they're selling him on, hey, man, nobody's ever left voluntarily. Great place Wouldn't to work. It, what would you do if a firm told you, yeah, nobody's ever left our firm before? Uh, honestly, my first gut reaction to that, I'd probably be almost compelled to say it in the interview, was, hey, you don't hire many young women, do you? <laughs> that- well, you got that point. But it's, it's just kind of like I, I would be very weirded out if a job a job was trying to recruit me by saying no one's ever left. Yeah, you framed that better. So we got we have some of the lowest turnover of any firm in the country just because it's that quality place to work. They literally phrase it, though, is that nobody's ever left our firm. It's like, oh, all right, Hotel California firms, what's going on here? It's like one of those things like low turnover, good. No, no turnover, turnover, bad. <laughs> hey, we, we've had three or four tur- examples of turnover. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> They're all dead, but, you know, these things happen. So he gets that thought in his head. But um, while he's in the Caymans, we get to see Mitch deal with his first client meeting. Of Wait where, a second. Uh, d- does the client meeting happen before or after the tryst on the beach? 
uh, happens before. We'll get okay. there in a second. <laughs> right, Which, again, yeah. th- this is massively pulled forward in this story compared to where it is in the book, I feel. Man, it's so different. And that's why I'm having kind of trouble. Um, I know. We're, we're, in the, we're in doing the, this together. Yeah, in the previous adapt- adaptations, um, my memory of the book ran so linear with your your recap. Mm-hmm. But my memory of this uh, of the book is, is so it's so different that it's kind of all over the place. So that's why I'm kind of jumping in. Like, is that happening? Nope, nope. Okay, I'll back up. I'm, jump, I'm jumping around a little bit because I just don't, I don't want to focus on too much of the minutia. It's a long damn film, but yeah. Two hours and 34 minutes. But we get it one of his first client meetings. Braver is brought him off the Caymans. He's better to meet with, I think his name, name of the guy is Sonny Caps, I think is the name of the client or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, Sonny Caps. Um, where he's, they're trying to market this guy in terms of accepting a plan. Because this guy's constantly pissed that he's paying anything. This is the same from the book. that the I, From this guy's perspective, the fact he's paying anything in taxes is a personal affront and a failure on the part of his attorneys. And so the funny part about Sonny Cap in the book is they make the, Grisham makes the point that if Sonny Cap has to pay $500,000 of legal fees, he doesn't bat an eye. If yeah. he has to pay $500,000 of taxes, someone is getting fired. Yeah, someone is dead. <laughs> someone will die. This cannot happen. Such a funny idea. Like, yeah. does, it's not the money. It's, uh, I don't want to pay taxes. There are several clients like that that are willing to pay us for spite. That's the thing that happens. Um, but he meets with Sonny Caps and... Avery's trying to sell him on this new, essentially, scheme that they're involved in, this new tax haven idea. But really, it takes Mitch to actually hammer this one home. Now, you deal with a lot of clients. You deal with a lot of outside context. How did you feel about Mitch's sales speech here? It works, but would you have recommended it going in? No. Not at all. And it's, you know, it's, it, this is one of those, ex- I'm so glad you quite pointed out this, um, th- this moment, Spencer, because I it, think this, this is, is not from Tom, the book at all. No, it's completely made up. The, Mitch in the book would never have done such a thing. And if he did, Mitch he wouldn't would, be allowed like, to. Avery would have stopped him. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have like felt, he would have cut him off mid conversation mm-hmm. if he had started to talk to Sonny Caps that way. Um, Mitch, and, but Mitch would never have done it in the book. That's not his character. I think this was, this is when you cast Tom Cruise, you got to give Tom Cruise Tom well, Cruise moments. And this is a Tom Cruise moment. Again, Mitch in the book is the protagonist. He's not the hero. He's not a hero. No. Mitch in the movie is our hero in many ways. He's meant to be the hero. And they've structured the entire film off that and his relationship with Abby. Those are kind of the two big themes that really go through it. But... He's able to sell this deal in the most brazen way possible, which luckily works with Sunny Caps. Um, they're celebrating. They pulled things off great. Everyone wants to take him out for just a night of partying. Consequences be damned. It's very apparent early on that Avery's trying to get Mitch laid. <laughs> that yes. he's, There is a lady at the table that may be at least paid to be there. It's not clear. Um, in the book, she distinctly is. Uh Avery's having fun. He's married. Doesn't give a fuck. He's here to have drinks. He's here to party. He's here to he's here to get laid. Mitch is uncomfortable with this. He's a little bit drunk. He's uncomfortable with this lady. Walks away from her. Decides to go on a walk from the beach. And while he's walking on the beach, he comes across something. What does he come across? Uh, is it another lady? No. Even worse, he comes across a lady that's being attacked. Oh. yeah. This is a huge, another huge change. Oh, I don't God. like this, this at all. Oh, this is so awful in the film. This is such a dumb, because this did not happen in the book. No. It's such a dumb thing to throw in. It's a, it's a weird thing, too, knowing that this is a setup, that they chose to set it up in this way, too. It's like, in the book, no. She's just a really accomplished prostitute or escort who specifically seeks him out and is really skilled at seducing people, and so she seduces him. 
In this, this is some elaborate ruse. It's like, yeah, in like, like this sort of like um, role play to make Mitch the hero. Yes, so that he working can, off the hero he can, themes. He can hook up with this, the damsel yeah, in distress. Which it's is creepy all the way around. It's really creepy. It's really cringy. It's really awkward, but it works. So kudos to the, you know, mafia agents that arranged this. They apparently read the guy well. That it's set up as him to be a white knight situation. He scares off the guy that's hazarding her. He gets to bandage her wounds. And she plays a similar kind of history to him. That she's looking to be up and coming. She's looking to feel rich and feel like all these rich people. Which they've made so on the nose in the film in terms of Mitch having that kind of perspective. And she moves in to seduce him. And he submits. And if, they enjoy- you, if you're following us along, if you're following along with Mangum Talks TV to all these adaptations, you would have watched the Rainmaker, where Claire Danes is beat all the hell, and our protagonist like finds her attractive and hooks up with her. Tom Cruise, woman getting attacked, wanting get woman getting attacked, he goes, fights him off. She's all he needs to bandage her up, hooks up with her. You would think that Grisham just sets up like broken women to be no, like sexual. No, he no. does not. I just want does to not. say Grisham does not, does not do this. This is that. an adaptation <laughs> choice. <laughs> this is movie shit. It does not happen in these books. This is a choice by Sidney Pollock and Francis Ford Coppola to really emphasize these things or just straight make them up in this case. But that's their kink. It's not Grisham's. Um, they enjoy a roll in the sand, and Ooh. Mitch wakes up in the morning. <laughs> looking to dot his eyes and cross his T's that Avery knew exactly where he was and he's covering for him, effectively. Because uh, Avery apparently got a call that night and, you know, covered for Mitch. Mitch was walking the beach. I didn't know where he was. Mitch is out of sorts about this. It's not the kind of guy he wants to be. He's uncomfortable with what this is, and he's worried to the degree it's going to bleed back on him. And so, kind of as a result of this particular state of mind, he goes to see his brother, Ray, who is played by David Strathern. Excellent actor, they give him nothing to do to work with in this role, but he still does okay. I should have mentioned that this is another cat, egregious casting error. David Strathern, good Strathern, good actor, mm-hmm. but in the roles that he has been in the in the roles that he has been successful, he is a very zen dude. Like if you've ever like look at him in other roles, or even just like listen to him like in just interviews of just David talking. He is like a really calming presence. Mm-hmm. He's charismatic in his in his in chill, soft spoken kind of chill. Way. Yeah, and like Ray McDear is a violent like felon. <laughs> he beat who, a guy to death. <laughs> yeah, beat a guy to death in a bar fight. Who, by the way, in the in the book, as you know, in the events that unfold, uh, beats the hell out of uh, some woman and ties her up. Um, not yeah. not. Be, be, she's a bad woman, she, but she's he still an agent of the up. mafia. He, he, yeah, he, but he, he still beats her up. He I'm kills people that, in the story too, doesn't he? Doesn't he actually kill one of the mafia guys that comes after him? Too? Yeah, he does. So Ray, we you're you're rooting for him in the sense that he is Mitch's brother, but like it's very clear that Ray is capable of violence and he's a sketchy guy. And David Strathern is absolutely miscast in the role. Yeah, I've seen him in violent roles, but not as a Ray kind of character. But he still bring he he is David Strathern playing this role. It's very obvious. I can always like David Strathern. It just doesn't really come across as Ray. Yeah, he also um, gets like six lines, so that doesn't. No, oh yeah, massively cut down role. But we like him in the book because of the relationship he has with Mitch, because of the history the two of them share, and because. 
his crime is framed as being not necessarily sympathetic, but maybe over-prosecuted in terms of the circumstances kind of thing. Yeah, they were in a bar fight and one guy ended up dying. Yeah, cause, because he, Ray is a lethal kind of guy. I think he's a veteran. He's a very experienced uh, in terms of, in ter- fight, fighter and in combat. He gets in a fight, he can kill somebody, and he did. But him and Mitch, brothers, Ray always cared for them in what is a very broken kind of family history that Mitch has. He's an incredibly estranged relationship with his mom. His, dad, his dad's long since dead. Ray effectively kind of raised him and cared for him. And so he hasn't gone to Ray in a long time because Ray is in prison. And Mitch is trying to find a better place for himself. And at least in the setting and context of the film, apparently the idea that he has a brother in prison would mean that he wouldn't get a job. Which, I don't really think that's ever been true. But maybe. Certainly certainly isn't really true in the book. I mean, he doesn't talk about his brother, not because he's scared he won't get a job, but because he... Uh, Mitch is a private guy, and like he doesn't, he doesn't want to just put his brother's shit out there. Oh yeah, and it, it's it's much more believable. It, 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 I find it very unbelievable that the firm in the book, and the firm in the film, doesn't know about Ray. They would have found that in a freaking heartbeat. Where Ray, of course, and they probably would. I mean, most well anyway. Who knows what this firm? But, but like, the, should, the they fir- shouldn't care. This firm, in particular, I don't think would, wouldn't have cared because it gives them extra leverage over Mitch, which they even use in this. Um, Good, but. Point. He's talking. He's talking with Ray. He's you know they're talking about how long it's been since they're talking with each other. How much Ray's barely able to ha- really hang on this m- number of years in prison. And Mitch also bars his soul a bit about some of the concerns he's starting to develop with the firm. That he's worried about this. He's worried about this kind of history. He's worried about what he's finding out about this history of dead partners, about nobody leaving. He's got some concerns with some of the cases. He's got concerns with the mortgage to his home. Yeah, he's he's got. He's really not concerned about that now. I know it's fucking strange that that never crosses his mind. Maybe that's something to worry about, Mitch. He's concerned about this weird, this weird off room in the firm condo that apparently you can just open with a single key that every partner has. uh, That has just loads of files inside it that are matched with some of the dead attorneys and matched with other names that he's read about in the news and a little bit concerned about. So he's kind of trying to look at, get Ray for a certain bit of advice. And Ray recommends that he talks to an old associate of his, a former cellmate of his, played by Gary Busey in this film, Eddie Unbelievable, Lomax. Unbelievable, terrible casting again. This is, you know, another example, and this is in the extreme. When you, you know, when I said, I said, you cast Tom Cruise, then you're going to get some Tom Cruise moments, right? Tom mm-hmm. Cruise, it becomes a Tom Cruise show. When you, you cast, cast Gary, Gary Busey. Busey, it becomes uh, just a caricature. And what sucks is that the character in the book is actually a really interesting character. He's a guy who was in jail with Ray mm-hmm. and Ray saved the guy's life because the guy was a... Um, he was convicted of rape. Statutory rape, yeah. Statutory rape, but it was really like a, like a 16, 17-year-old girl that he was like 23, 24, and he really liked her. And, and st- you know, that that normal story. Yeah. Uh, basically the same story we got in The Time to Kill, by the way. But <laughs> Grisham reusing stories. Grisham uses this, yeah. <laughs> and um, Ray pieced together, this guy's not like a like a rapist, like a violent rapist. He's a statutory rapist with the girl was underage. But and he was protected consensual. him. And so he protected him. And again, another more evidence Ray's a badass because he fought off like a group of people who were going to jump this guy. Anyway, that that endeared the guy to Ray. The guy gets out, and he is a very adept private eye. I think he's a open, former cop, isn't he? Former cop, and he's very Which adept. Part of the reason he's going to be in prison. Builds up a very successful business with Tammy, 
mm-hmm. working for him, and the two of them ended up, uh, you know, uh, bump, uh, yeah. knocking boots. But the but the character in the book is is like well written, compelling, and what do we get in this fucking film? Googly eyed Gary Busey <laughs> doing Gary so Busey much crazy things. So much coke on this <laughs> man right now. Wired out of his mind. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's, it's really disappointing. Eddie Lomax is among my favorite characters in the book because he's Agreed. so interestingly well-written. He's so competent. This is something that cut out entirely is that in the book, Eddie Lomax does all the research and is the one that advises Mitch about this. Mitch only yep. knows the names of the people in the book, and Eddie's the one that gives him this play-by-play recounting of, yeah, he died in his office having shot himself. No real prior history of depression gun with no fingerprints on it, a professional gun that had no prior history with like 30 years of background on it, a car ran into with no other driver in it. He's the one that recounts all this that really gets Mitch incredibly paranoid. And he's the one that actually advises Mitch of, dude, be careful and get out of there. I'll protect you how I can. I owe you that. I owe your brother that. But this place is bad news. And Eddie, in the book, is... So so skilled and, and so competent that they do this super elaborate thing of like a fake job to get him looking yeah. in the camera one way. <laughs> they while don't just they, walk they do into this, his office. They just, shoot him. Yeah, how do they kill him in the fucking film? Two guys walk in and just shoot Gary Busey in the chest. Like it is so basic compared to you know you know how Eddie was killed off in in the book, and it's actually important because you know Tammy in the book goes. For these guys to have got to Eddie this way, they have to be some very serious, very bad guys. And it it is part of her motivation to get even by working with Mitch, but also to be super, super careful. Because she realizes if they killed Eddie, then they they could easily kill me. Because Eddie's, um, a, Eddie's yeah. a point of view character for some of these scenes. Uh, the book has several different perspectives at, very different, at various times. And you can go through his thought process of when they're luring him out there that he sees the signs early and they keep trying to find new ways essentially to lure him out there and to get him to lower his guard. But his attention to detail, his constant awareness of the threats is apparent. And as you said, they really have to plot around it to get him to a circumstance of where they can ambush him. Rather than just walking in of where... Eddie Lomax's book... Two of those guys walk into his office. When does he start shooting? Three seconds after they just walk he in? Would have had, he would have had a shotgun pointed to him under the desk. He would have killed him before they got their gun out. And and I just, whoever cast this film, did, I, did they read the book? Why the hell would you cast Gary Busey for this role? Like, so you, what do you get? Like, Gary Busey, blah, blah. Like, it's so cartoonish and bad. Um, it is, you know... I'm struggling to figure out what what's the biggest casting mistake here. Um, I think right now, as we're talking, in my poll position is is still Holly Hunter as Tammy. Well, but I'm yeah. going to put Gary Busey to Abby at three. That's my power rankings right now. It may change as we continue to discuss. One, one Holly Hunter is she plays his assistant Tammy uh, Tammy Hemphill, I think is her name. Yeah. Um, she is a wonderful character. She may be my favorite character in the book in terms of her personality, in terms of her skill, in terms of her dedication for these purposes. She's such she, a badass. She's awful. She awesome makes the, the plot happen in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think at, at the end, Wayne Terrence even tells her, the FBI couldn't have done this without you. And it's effortlessly true. Mitch would have died. Abby would have been left a widow or worse. The FBI never would have gotten their files. Tammy's the one that pulls this entire shit off. She makes it all happen. She is she is the go-go juice and, of the entire plot in the book. And she does and she does it as a, you know, mid-40s, 
bit tired on her luck, bit of a rough back background, beautiful blonde bombshell who knows her charms, who knows her abilities, and uses every single one of them to her favor. Huge and boobs, said, huge boobs, and at one point puts her boobs on Avery's arm. <laughs> Mid conversation, yeah. what a power move! Oh she yeah, just it may, that may I had to stop and read that twice. She just <laughs> she just arched her back and placed her boobs on his arm in order well, to get some information I, out I, of him, and it worked. I remember that scene correctly. When Avery first even sees her, he doesn't even see her. He just sees a pair of large boobs approaching him across the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, she, you know, that's you know, I'm not I'm not trying to like objectify these actresses. I'm saying that that. That is a very important attribute yes. to the plot that she's attractive and has big boobs and she's a knockout, et cetera, et cetera. And Holly Hunter's a really good actress. Matter of fact, she's great in Succession. If you haven't mm-hmm. watched our listen to our Succession uh, 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 coverage, check it out. It's here on Mangum Talks TV. I like her in Succession. She's miscast in this role. And it's weird too. She's from Georgia and is in a lot of her roles called upon to do a Southern accent of various kinds. But she can't do a Tennessee accent very well, as we, it's we discussed. It's so bad. They they needed to just make her British or something. They needed to change <laughs> the whole background of this character. Her, her, I mean, I realize I'm hard on people for yeah. Southern accents, but come on, dude. Yeah. Like, I, I caught one time she was on the phone, and she started just Holly Hunter, and she ended on some Southern accent. It, it changed mid-sentence. It was so bad. Yeah, I think... I think it's like Saving Grace, she does a Texas accent that's okay. But it's a varied range. But like you said, with respect to the casting here, that particularly in this book, sexuality and sexualization and using that for your advantage, using that key scenes, is a key aspect of the plot in various ways. It makes the plot necessary in certain ways. It's characters using it to their advantage in a lot of different ways. Or dealing with the outside pressures that come with it. In Abby's case, Abby's case... She's, as you know, so gorgeous, she's constantly being leered at and objectified by her and around her. And so when we see that from perspective, we get a bit of her mindset and her discomfort with that. For Tammy, she's used her sexuality for years for her benefit in various ways, and that's a key aspect for how she ultimately seduces Avery and makes the friggin' plot and Mitch's schemes happen. But, we'll get into that. Um... So he meets with Eddie Lomax, who, like you said, they kind of just focus on like our first meeting of Eddie Lomax of where he's kind of really excited and doing a spiel of like talking to Mitch just because he's excited to meet him. And in the film, they made that his entire character in terms of that aspect of his personality. Um, He talks with him briefly and he says he's going to look into it. And apparently that's enough that the firm walks into his office and shoots him like eight times, which the firm of the book would never do that because you couldn't cover that up. The entire point of the murder of Eddie Lomax in the book is that it's meant to be like a... Dr- it's occurring in a rough neighborhood. It's meant to be possible drug deal gone wrong kind of thing. There's plausible deniability. All of their murders Same have a cover. Same way all the damn employees died. Like, yes. you know, in some... They give... Pl- yeah, plausible deniability. That's what they do. They, they set up a scene where it looks like they died in some other fashion. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Very, it's, it's how, very consistent. How do you write off this scene of where... It plays out here. They shoot his ear off. They shoot him in the shoulder. They unload in his chest. And one of their guys gets his kneecap shot off and bleeds all over the office. It's awful. Yeah. But whatever. Tammy's there. Tammy's <laughs> under the table for... I think I think she says at one point she was vacuuming the carpet, which is a wonderful way of euphemism for what she was doing. Um, and she survives. And notably, she gets to see the two guys that do it. Um... Mitch finds out when he's like um, going to, I think it's a, a, a 
a probably a CLE or a, a, a conference that's happening in DC that Eddie Lomax has been killed. And he finds this out at almost the same time that he gets another note from Terrence, because Terrence is in the audience there with him at, for, for this particular uh, convention. And encourages him that, hey, you need to talk with somebody. Come with me. And through means of various agents, various contacts, they direct him off to the reflecting pool in front of the, in front of the Washington Monument, where he gets to meet not just a junior director, not just a senior agent, the director of the FBI who is uh, played by Stephen Hill, who's, a, who's another great actor. Uh, and the director's name is Denton Voiles in this. this is Denton actually a- Voiles. By the way, Denton Voiles, director Denton Voiles, um, is the director of the FBI in like a bunch of Grisham books. He's a recurring character across, which suggests that all of Grisham's novels are happening in the same universe, which is a fun kind of Marvel thing. Yeah, it's pretty uh, neat. Um, again, great. A- there's a lot of great actors in this. We can debate and talk about how well they're cast or whatever else. This is fine. This is fine. This is fine. Uh, they it's don't okay. like what they ultimately I'm do with the character, but the casting is fine. It's okay. Uh, but basically, his role was to tell Mitch that, okay, all the cards on the table, your firm is a front for the mafia. Your firm is used as a cover for them for the purpose of money laundering. No one has ever left your firm alive. Anyone that has tried has died. And in the film, at least, he doesn't reveal that, yeah, at least two of them died because they were try- about to turn state's evidence to us. <laughs> Leaves out that part. Yet again, book, more nuanced, more interesting. The explanation from the director of the FBI is it is used as a front to launder money. Um, however, it's a very, very good front because there is a lot of legitimate business that actually goes through the firm. And um, you you are... You're not. It's not until you're like a partner that you basically become a made man, where they like tell you the story. And so he says, you know, you you're you're like a few years away from them actually telling you uh, what's up. And you and by the way, you're probably working on legitimate files. Like that's right. that's part of the confusion for Mitch in the book is that like there is a I've lot of legitimate work being yeah, a lot of legitimate tax work being done. However, um, you know, obviously the the corporation itself uh, is being used to, to funnel money through the game, which reflects the genius subtlety. Of- of the firm in the book that their goal yeah. is here is to get you in enough that you can't leave that you're in it now that you're part of this that you may have been a good honest straight-laced person now but you are in the middle of this and you cannot escape yep. and it could take years to do that intentionally so um and that the firm has lots of legitimate clients for that purpose because they can't just have illegitimate ones which is suggested to a certain degree in the movie too so it lays that to mitch that your, your house is bugged, your car is bugged, your office is bugged, you're being monitored at all times. You've got to work with us because we've been investigating this firm for four years. We're going to crush them at some point, and if you haven't started working with us, we're going to take you down too. And basically just says, Mitch, you call us. We want to hear your terms because this is happening. With you, with you or without you, this is happening. It'd be better off with you. Um, Mitch has terms. What are those terms? You remember, you remember what they are? Uh, uh, I get it confused with the book. I don't even remember what. In, in the it's film. like, I'll tell you this. You, you okay. can tell me what the terms are. But I will tell you this. That in both the book and the film, I was just astonished at the balls of this Mitch McDear. <laughs> like, just right away, I was like, well, I'll tell you what you got to do to get me, Mr. Director of the FBI. Like, holy shit, you're not in a position to like, do a lot of <laughs> do a lot of negotiating here, Mitch. 
Yeah. Mitch in the film asks for $1.5 million, or $1.1 million, to which Terrence Wayne objects, so he raises it to $1.5 million. So stupid. And it's comical. He wants his brother out of prison. Yeah, he wants his brother out of prison. Oh, my God. Oh, God. I can't wait till we get to this. So these are, the ter- these are the terms that he offers, and essentially the FBI says, sure, we could possibly make these happen, that we can get your brother out, because originally they basically tell him that, you know, if you don't work with us, your brother your brother brother's parole hearing might not go that well, so they had that kind of extra pressure on him. Okay, I'm going to do the rant now. It's so, like, I'm not saying this book is great, but I'm saying that the book makes a lot more sense because Ray is in jail for murdering somebody. That Mm -hmm. is a state crime. And the FBI in the book is very clear. This is the one thing where they go, wait a second, we can't do this. That is a state crime. He's in a state penitentiary. It is a state offense. We have nothing to do with this. And Mitch drives the hardest of hard bargains about getting his brother out of prison. And what they end up having to do in the book is like to concoct a jailbreak that the warden is in on that I think a U.S. senator, the U.S. senator from Tennessee has to plan. So basically the FBI goes to the U.S. senator from, uh, from Tennessee who then goes to, I guess, the governor who then goes down through the prison system to the warden and says, get this done. They concoct a jailbreak, which Ray is astonished that this thing is happening. They get him up over the fence. They cut a hole in the barbed wire. They get him out. They run him. They've got like a coyote who runs with him. Like, like, like a, like not like a, a a, a, a human smuggler, human, human smuggler, coyote who, who runs with him to get him out. Um, and it, it is a very interesting, um, plot point because it shows like, yeah, the FBI, has power, but it, it's kind of limited in this. And the only way they were able to do it is through this really weird jailbreak to make it happen. What happens in the film, Spencer? Well, I don't they know. Let's just, just sign, sign him, out him out for the weekend. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, sign they him sign out him out, out under. And again, plausible deniability. <laughs> Terrence Ter- signs his own name. He signs him out under his seal to his custody. Signs his own name. Signs him. Hey, I guess if you're in, you can if you're the FBI in this universe, you can just show up and be like, you know what? I just want to see that prisoner for the weekend, and they have sure. a form for that. The prison has a form for it. Here you go. Now, we'll just fill this form out. Yeah, I mean, it, I the FBI is a much is weirdly done in the film compared compared to the book. In the book, they're in some ways antagonistic to Mitch, but because Mitch is an asshole, it's really out there only for his own interests. But they're the ultimate, really, the heroes of the story. They're the good guys that are trying yes. to really do the good thing. The film portrays them as abject dicks that are looking to betray Mitch at every turn. Yeah, because they have to make Tom Cruise the hero. Yes, and Tom Cruise has to find a scenario that's able to get away from all these bad people. The film almost makes the mafia look better than the FBI by the time they're done with this. So, which is a really I, weird judgment call. I, the signing him out for the yeah. weekend and just having and just him walk, walk out yep. is so lazy. It is, You know what? I feel like they were looking at the book and they went, ooh, a jailbreak scene. That's going to be expensive. expensive. What could we do? You could just sign him out. Done. Uh, this film had a budget of $42 million in 1993. They had money to do things. God knows. Sign him out. Okay, uh, sure. Okay, but again, so much of what we liked about the book 
is not the focus of the film. The film does not care about that. The film cares about Mitch, and the cares about his relationship with Abby, and they care about Mitch's process of finding a moral through line and center. Those are the themes the film wants to focus on. Those aren't really almost even there in the book, but the film wants to make them first and foremost. Tom Cruise show. Tom Cruise show. But they, he drives this hard bargain, and while he's doing this, he also runs back into Tammy. Tammy, who effectively works out a scenario by which she could drop off breakfast for him so that he can arrange to meet her at a diner. Fried egg sandwich. Fried egg sandwich. Great sandwich, though. Great Fried egg sandwich is a great way to start That's a day. A, that I is a very solid sandwich option. Jumped out to me, that, that one detail. There, there are any number of places in the South of where you can find a good deli that does a fried egg sandwich, and you should find that, and you should order it more often wherever you work. Um, but Cosign, 100%. Absolutely. But he's talking with her about her concerns, that she's afraid, that she's looking to, that she's both, that she doesn't know what to do. And she's kind of turning Mitch about how she, how they can protect, protect each other. Because from her perspective, she's trying to protect him. Because this happened, it could happen to you too. And he works out a scenario by which she can factor her into his plan. And this is drawing elements from the book. I think it's fair to say in terms of how this works out, that he sets her up in an office building that's next door with a copier and he's basically going to try to run the files to her so that they can copy all the files that they need from the firm so then get them to the FBI. Similar enough idea. Um, This combines about at least three or so or Chekhov's guns that have been set up at this film that all ultimately prove relevant in different ways. One, this cotton exchange building has been mentioned like eight times in this film because apparently one of his clients works there. So that's where he's got her stuff. It's right next door. Two, there's a big truckload of, I think it's cotton or feathers that's just parked next door always. That shows up in like four or five scenes to, to later prove relevant. Yeah, because I mean that, you, you get that in a lot of like downtown urban areas. <laughs> you know, big, Even big, in big, Memphis, they don't have that. <laughs> yeah, you get big, big just truckfuls of just picked cotton. That it, makes a lot of sense. It, it was cotton, right? Just want to make sure. It was cotton, yes. It was okay. like straight from the field. Right through downtown Memphis. And and it's, like, sitting there for, like, three days, too, which is not great for fresh cotton, either. Um, Also, another thing you get, Tom Cruise, in this movie, is an acrobat. Keep track of that for some reason. We get him to see him to do, like, a a series of gymnastic somersaults with with a kid along the street in Memphis in an earlier scene. It proves vaguely relevant later for reasons. I guess Tom Cruise was in a gymnastics phase. Um... Well, of course he was. He's Tom Cruise. I mean, but, he's gonna got to do some stunts. I mean, it's you know, Mission Impossible uh, with lawyers. Again, if this was Tom Cruise, even a few years later, they would have added a scene with him on a motorcycle. He's clearly not in complete creative control of this film. Otherwise, that would have happened. <laughs> Doesn't matter the subject surprised. matter. Got to have a scene with a motorcycle. Surprised, surprised there was no motorcycle scene. <laughs> you know, right? Um, but while he's setting this up with Tammy. One thing occurs to him when he has him to go and meet with another client, who may be my favorite added character in this film, that he's one of his legitimate clients who's confronting him about the subject of his fees. You, you talked about this scene. Yeah, yeah, the yeah the guy who's like, um, well, you say his fees, uh, it's, his hours but it's not worked. really his fees, it's how he's billing them. Well, it's number of hours worked. of where Exactly. He said, yeah, he just, it, it was great because he's just like, he... It was such like non bullshit. It was like, dude, this is obviously bullshit. And like, he actually kind of, if I remember correctly, he indicates like, 
that maybe this has been going on for a little while. He's going to kind of let it go. He wasn't going to say a bit much about it. But this has gotten extreme, Mitch. Like this is yes. this is just too much at this point. And he, he confronts him on is that you know I want to tell you this because you're a young attorney in this firm. You know this is a felony, right? This is now, mail. This is, so here's my question for you. This is real lawyer, fake lawyer. So that that is true. I looked it up. Overbilling a client yeah. is 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 a felony. Is this something that like lawyers like really think you could get like a felony for? Or is this just kind of like yeah, no. it's a felony, but it, no, it, you, there's no way you guys are thinking you're really going to get popped for a felony for overbilling, it, right? It depends on the scale and it depends on the intentionality and the purpose of it. With the fir- with a firm itself that's doing this, it is actions of mail fraud in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy. That is the definition of RICO. That can subject you to all kinds of shit in terms of this. Now, RICO, ladies and gentlemen, this is fake lawyer. RICO is when you can put a bunch of people in the courtroom at one time and the judge can convict them all at once. I saw that in a movie. <laughs> uh, y- yes, yeah, that, that is involved. It's The full term is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It was that a, too. It was originally intended to take down the, the mafia. And as you said, in movies, the way they do that is they take like 12 mafia bosses in the same dock together. They put them all behind one small table. Yes. And uh, they're all talking. And the judge goes, silence. Silence. Grab, 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 You're all going off to prison. Yeah. That, this is how films think Rico works. It's a bit more involved <laughs> process than that. Though, oddly enough, that was kind of the original purpose and intent was... <laughs> Let's find a way to get every mem- all kinds of members of a criminal organization part of it, whether we know that each individual actually did it. The idea of RICO cool. is that an individual can do an act in furtherance of a conspiracy, whether that's the full conspiracy or not. Individual acts can contribute to a greater whole, and they're all potentially liable for it. Who that's did, like, works. the first big RICO? It was, like, to take down the mob. Some lawyer did it, and he ended up being, like, really famous. Uh, Giuliani, famous for doing Giuliani, there you go. Giuliani did the Rico thing. That's that's Dude, our Giuliani guy. was famous early in his career for Rico. Giuliani before President Events was actually a very skilled attorney earlier off in his career. Ooh, Recent events, not as much. Um, but so he's client advice about this, and Mitch just took the bar. This is the wonderful thing about firms love attorneys that just took the bar because they actually know this shit in the ways that other attorneys have just constantly forgotten. He read this in the bar. He knows that it's a felony. He knows that it's a problem. And it immediately sets him on an entirely different idea than what he was previously doing. Because getting confidential records was hard. The firm's recently instituted a policy where you have to basically include a billing number and your own personal number for every file you copy kind of thing. Getting records out involves individual smuggling. It's difficult. Billing records, potentially easier. Attorneys have access to those. Attorneys can look at those. Attorneys can compare those. And Mitch is able to do so at various points. So he kind of refinagles his plan with Tammy about, okay, 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 okay. I'm going to do it this different way because it doesn't involve me as much in the illegal shit. And it doesn't involve me turning over client records to the FBI, which he's worried could get him disbarred. We're going to talk about that later. Put a pen in that one. Um, so he starts doing this new plan of the billing records. While this is happening, after his meeting and confrontation with the FBI, Mitch does a smart thing. And this is a similar smart thing that he does in the book. The difference being is that Wayne Terrence told him to do it in the book. He goes to the firm to tell them that, he's meet, that, he, that, the, that he met with the FBI. Now, the setup in the book is that I think Terrence kind of pulls him into like a shoe shop or something. And a, an agent walks by and sees them. And so this is a means of cover. In this, Mitch just decides to do it, apparently. Well, no. So... 
in the book, he gets approached by the FBI, and his loyalties are very much with the firm. So he actually for goes a while. to for a while. he goes to the firm and tells them about this. He's just honest. He just tells them, "Hey, I got approached by the FBI. What the fuck?" Now he eventually figures out that the firm is really super shady. He starts to work with the FBI. Yes, he meets with them in a, in a like a ten dollars shoe store, and one of the security people, who by the, the way, Mitch, Mitch is being trailed all the time all at this all point the by by this firm security, which firm security we'll get to here in a second mr diabetes and somebody <laughs> sees him Grimley. somebody sees him and and he goes the the fbi agent very heady move goes scream at me say just get away from me, me throw me go away. run upstairs and say that the fbi just try to talk and he, that's what he does yes because wayne terrence though he's a bit of a wayne terrence in the book is a bit overly headstrong he occasionally gets ahead of himself in terms of his actions the shoe star being seen being an example it's a kind of a dumb thing but he's a good agent, he's a competent agent, and he wants to protect Mitch. He's not this kind of waiting to, you know, inflict police brutality guy that Ed Harris is playing this role as. Um, but scene happens. By the way, can you watch anything Ed Harris is in and not think man in the the Man in Black from, <laughs> yes. from Westworld? Yeah, yes, I can. I saw him in a lot of things before then. But he was okay because I'm really struggling with it because he's so good as the Man in Black in the season one of Westworld that like now I watch it, but I'm, I'm just waiting for him to go. Burp, 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 it, burp, Ed Harris, another example of a wonderful actor that's not given much to work with in this film. No, um, shit. But Mitch, confront- why even pay for Ed Harris if you're going to give him? Well, this, crap? Th- th- this was the problem with the you know prison breakout thing. They used all of their budget on casting too many good actors. So yeah, they- to give them nothing. <laughs> Um, but he, Mitch tells them this, and this gets their radar up, and it results in a scene of when Mr. Diabetes, Wilford Brimley, who is an excellent actor before he did commercials, very miscast in this role <laughs> as Devasher, uh, arranges to, hey, Mitch, can I have a talk with you? Gets Mitch in the car, where it's the same blonde agent that Mitch has been told about and even seen before, and takes Mitch out to the middle of nowhere and says, you know, I'm worried about you with the FBI. The FBI, they love to use these underhanded tactics. I mean, they might even use something like this. I mean, they could find out about this. And he gives him an envelope. What's in this envelope, dude? It's uh, it's pictures of him uh, hooking up with the, the lady in the Caymans. It is surprisingly stylistic black and white pornography. Like, whoever camera guy they arranged for this was just waiting for the perfect moments for just, you know, styled erotic kind of, kind of shit. Yeah. Um, and it's basically the un- the implied threat here, which it's weird. This scene is done very much implied, whereas in the book, Devasher's just straight out straight out saying, "We got your ass, son." Oh don't yeah, Devasher's just like, "Hey, check this out. We're gonna show your wife if you don't stop working." Well, De- De- Devasher in the book is a corrupt former like Chicago cop who he's utter he's utterly moralist. He's utterly brazen. He works for the mafia. He doesn't work for the firm. Yeah, I know, and that actually causes a lot of headache with the firm because the firm's trying to tell him what to do, and he says, I don't work for you. And by the way, look, can we go back to Wilford Brimley? Um, Excellent I, actor. I'm going to defend Wilford I, Brimley. Well, here's the thing. I'm not going to say that Wilford Brimley's a bad actor. I'm not going to say that at all. I am going to say that Wilford Brimley, all-time mail-in. I, mean, oh, yeah. I, I don't Fair. blame him for mail-in this doesn't in. do shit with this, yeah. I don't blame him because it's a crap role and it's a crap movie, but he just, he, it feels like he walks on set and goes, okay, what's the line? Boom, go. Like, it is like, no, yeah. he is just mailing it in at an all-time level. And it's disappointing because Devasher's one of the more developed of the inner firm people that we have, much more developed than any of the mafia contacts that we have. And he's a, he's a very fun character because more so than the partners, which are constantly, you know, nervous and uncertain of anything else, Devasher's cold. 
He is a cold-hearted bastard. He is willing to oh, kick the dog constantly to, to make his job work. For sure. And yeah. so he, make, he makes no bones to Mitch about just, dude, we know you. We know what you're doing. We have these. We have you. We can ruin you. And that's the least we can do. Don't fucking do this again. That's what basically the nature of the conversation. In the film, it's much more, you know, it'd suck if the FBI had anything like that. But, you know, I'm here to protect you, Mitch. I'm here to watch your back. Weirdly roundabout, but sure. So Mitch knows they've got this on him. In the book, that's actually one of the things that even more persuades him to work with the FBI is that he adopts a very much fuck them kind of mentality. In the film, not so much. Um, but he's got his plan. He's got his, he has his motivation. He has his goals. But one of the things that he really needs to make this happen is apparently, for reasons that's never really explained in the film, the billing records are in the Caymans. Yeah, and so, um, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the book, it's because they keep all of the illegal records in the Caymans. Well, no, makes... in the book, it's because they keep, so, they, so in the book, here's the, here's the scheme. They take the hard cash that the yes. mafia gets through drugs and other things, and they take actually hard cash. They stick it on a plane like once a month, about six million bucks, I think, is one delivery. And they take it down and they personally deliver cash to the Caymans. And then they get the bank records, the receipts, etc., yes. from all of those transactions with these Cayman banks, and they store them in the condo. Uh, in the games makes perfect sense, right? Yes, and and also it's also important for later that it's specifically the bank records because Mitch makes personal use of those bank records before he flees in the book in a way that does not at all happen in the film. Um, but yeah, yeah, he just steals a bunch of the mafia. He steals a lot of mob money. It's like too. one of my favorite fucking things about the book is that the FBI is like, we'll pay you like a million. He's like, no, two million. And then he gets the FBI two million. And then he steals like nine million of mafia money and he just <laughs> hightails it to the Caribbean. Yeah, it's tr- it's such a like, boss move. He gets away with like $12 million in the book. Oh, yeah. He, it's he, ridiculous. He has a ton of money and he's just down in the Caribbean being a criminal. It's amazing. It, he, like they, it really sets up for the firm too. Like him just yeah. down there oh, a, on the run. You didn't know that? They did a firm television series as a sequel. I am going to get to that. No, it's horrible. Don't watch it. No, I'm not going to watch it. But I am going to tell you that the casting's way better. <laughs> Fine, we'll get to there. Because um, part of the problem too in the book is that he only has access to clean records. He doesn't have access to the to the illegal records because that's not the nature of his job yet. So he has to find ways of getting them, primarily from the Caymans. So. And Apparently, a lot of the illegal, uh, like bad records, are on the fifth floor of the um, uh, of, of the, the office building in Memphis, and it's like this, like super locked, like you can't go up there and get a partner like, thing. And so, like, there's all this like suspense in him trying to get up there, and you know, this they throw in this little detail in the. Um, in the movie about how, Oh, all of a sudden the copier requires a code. Like that's actually a really big deal in the book because every time he tried, he, the copier will not work without his code. And then Devasher, like yeah. no, he's able to track how many times Mitch has used a code. He's like, why is Mitch making like a bajillion copies at 3 a.m.? And that's how they start to figure out that he's he's doing something sketchy with the FBI. Because Devasher is aware of everything. Devasher is almost supernaturally aware of everything that's going on because he's monitoring all the details constantly, and they're all running through him. So of course he would know about that detail, and of course he would set it up for that purpose. Yeah, absolutely. But for reasons that are never explained, apparently the 
billing records are in the office in the or in the, the condo in the Caymans. Yeah, right. Because Spencer, when you are working in downtown Memphis and you fill out your your bill for your client who works, uh, let's say, in Detroit. Um, the thing to do is to take that billing record and mail it to the Caymans. It's never put it explained. A, put it's it in a filing cabinet. It's never explained. I don't know why that, that, that's particularly done. Um, they also steal mob records when they're there too, so they can use them as collateral before the end of the film, but apparently the billing records are just in a box underneath those. I don't know why. Um, but he needs to arrange a plan to do this, and he arranges it through a bank's who is the uh, diving instructor who lost his son and uh, as a result of the, fir the firm's prior murder effort. He arranges it through the aid of Tammy. And the idea is that Banks is going to arrange it so that Avery, who is a big diver, credit to him, um, is going to go off in an elaborate, very distant dive to a distant reef. And that's going to be enough time that she can get Avery's keys, get in there, get the records, copy them, get everything sealed away before anyone's the wiser. Moral of the story, don't be a diver. No, that is not the moral of the story, and you will dive someday, sir. Um, okay, um, this plan starts to go off the wall for a couple reasons. One, Mitch feels the need late in the story to bar his soul to Abby, which is completely different than the book. I'm going to tell you this right now. My man Mitch in the book never tells her, <laughs> never would tell her. Abby never finds out. Like, that so, is off the table for Mitch to tell his wife about hooking up with somebody else in the game. It's off the, the table. To the point the book even makes a joke about it in, like, the last paragraph before the end, even. Yeah, he's never doing that in the book. No. Uh, to the point that Vasher uh, even taunts him with it at various times. Like, even sends him an empty envelope marked photos don't bend to his house. He's even just fucking with him because Abby doesn't know. And at every step of the way, it never occurs to Mitch to tell Abby. <laughs> never even cross. We, he's first person. Mi and he never crosses his mind to tell her. <laughs> Mitch is such a delightful asshole in the book. He's such an <laughs> asshole. And I honestly think he's a better character for it. Um, but Mitch tells Abby. Abby obviously does not respond well because the film really... In the book, Mitch and Abby do very much care for each other, do much love, love each other, but they get increasingly estranged over the story. And the two of them use that in their favor later as part, of the, as part of their plot to work together on this. But the film wants to emphasize their relationship at every damn turn. It wants to make their relationship the heart of the story. And so when she effectively, you know, leaves him, decides to go away, there's actually concerns in the film that she's actually leaving him that she's tired of this that she's on the loop now about everything that's happened with conspiracy and that's already enough of a reason that she feels that they should run even though they can't but now this may be the just you know the fi the final nail in the coffin so yes. she's looking to leave at this very similar moment she's angry at him because she feels like she's making he's making her feel guilty that she's wanting to call him out on his shit um and but she's wanting to go one last day at work at that last day at work, Avery, who has been creepily flirting with her the entire damn film, like really aggressively flirting with her too, which is just weird from your boss. And the thing about it is that like this is like it it is Avery would never even think to do this in the book because Abby is over Mitch's head. Like, Avery would never have a chance at Abby. And, like, it would just never happen. Well, Abby also would have told him to get fucked early in the book, yeah, too, yeah, I think. Yeah, for sure, yeah. She, she yeah, would have she told his ass off. Yeah, yeah. Abby in the book, Abby in the book, much more sassy than the Abby we get in the, in the movie. Abby in the book takes no shit. Abby in the, Abby in the uh, film comes into herself later, but it takes a long time for her to get there. And the way she does it is this. She finds out from Avery that he's not going to go diving because he had to shorten his trip, and you can't, 
fly within a, within a, within 24 hours of diving, which is absolutely true. Don't fuck around with nitrogen or narcosis, please. Um, Another so, reason not to dive. There's a lot of reasons to dive. We'll talk about them in a separate podcast. Um, so she quickly realizes that Mitch's plan is screwed. It can't work. They needed him to dive. Now they have no opportunity to do it. She calls Tammy, which I don't. She, she I think she even goes to see Tammy, which I don't think they really set up how she even knows. How Tammy does she yet. even know Tammy? That's what I'm saying. This <laughs> this book. If you haven't read the book, film wouldn't make any sense. But I mean, Mitch cued her into the, some of the plot. We know that Mitch did that mostly off camera, but he did cure into the plot. Maybe he told her about Tammy and the copying and everything else. Sure. And the two of them conspire without telling Mitch for reasons which aren't really ever explained necessarily. They don't, I guess they don't want to mess him off his A-game and he would object um, that she's going to now be their ace in the hole. That she's going to take Avery up on his offer and fly to the Caymans, seduce Avery, knock him out with a Mickey and get the files that way. Yeah. Which is a thing. Which uh, it, they're, and they're, 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 they're switching Tammy's role, right? They give Abby Tammy this plot point. so much more believable for this in the book than a- a- yeah. Abby doing this. Tammy does it in the book, and it is like, it is textbook, man. She just yeah. crushes this scene. And she, to the point she gets Avery in bed, takes his pants off to make him think he performed the act, sticks him in there. Like, when he wakes up in the next morning, she's like, yeah, big boy, that was great. She curls just in next to him when he wakes up. Crushes it. Yeah. 10 out of 10 Sells performance from Tammy in the book. The only way they try to set this up in the film is that Avery's been flirting on her aggressively throughout everything. So it's yeah. to set up a reason why he'd let his guard down rather than the skilled seductress that is Tammy. Yes. Um... It works, and it sets up a lot of framing Avery as a significantly more morally complicated and sympathetic par- character in the film than he is in the book. How did you feel about that change? They make Avery much more morally conflicted about what he is and unhappy with the person he's become. I feel like they were just they were tr- they, they they had written a very slow part into the film. Um. Which would have been the seducing part, knocking him out, you know, trying to get Abby trying to do this whole thing. And so it like the dialogue would have been like very like boring. Like they, they just introduced this thing of like Avery as like, oh, man, I'm, I, I, I thought you maybe came down here just to see me. Like I'm actually this broken guy as just a way to like carry what is otherwise a pretty boring scene. That's what I thought it was. It's very possible. I think it's also just trying to add another sympathetic face to the film and a certain sense of tragedy to it, which whether it lands or not, Gene Ackman's a good actor. So I think I'm going to say it okay. doesn't. I mean, the guy's just trying to screw his buddy's wife. Like, no, it doesn't. Does it? I'm not very sympathetic. I'm just going to say that. I know it's a hot take. <laughs> You're not sympathetic with bosses trying to screw their employees' wives? No, yeah. If you here, here's, here's some advice from Uncle Lee. If you're well, a boss... Here. And you're trying to sleep with your uh, subordinate's wife. Um, you're not a sympathetic character. Yeah, I don't care that you have a broken home life and are unhappy with the person that you've become and have moral compunctions about the life that you lead. None of that really forgives the shit that you're doing now. No, it doesn't. And by but, the way, Avery, the co- Avery, way too much confidence to think he was actually that this was actually working out for him. He should have been clued into the fact that like there was something sketchy going on by the simple fact that Abby was interested in him. Yeah. And- Personally, for me, I think it works okay just because Gene Hackman is a very skilled actor and does a pretty damn good job with this role. He even, does, if I, I, even I have to admit, he does a pretty good job. Yes, yeah, and I he agree. does make Avery a different character in the book, but a very sympathetic and interesting character, 
even if I don't necessarily like the that kind of change. Um, this happens, it goes off mostly without a hitch. They arrange for the files to go off, but same as in the book, they make a call from inside the condo, which is bugged, because of course it's bugged. And so yeah. it gets back yeah. to Devashin, who immediately realizes that something is up, because they just overheard the message, and they think a robbery is occurring. So they try to wake Avery up, doesn't work. They are able to finally get him in the morning after the files have already been yoinked out of there. And effectively, Avery knows what she, in, in the film, in the book, Avery's never the wiser. In the book, uh, in the book, Avery's never the wiser. In the film, Abby and Avery just kind of have a very honest conversation of where he realizes what she did. He not even, not, not even necessarily forgives her, he almost approves of what she did. And he effectively tries to send her out to protect her, knowing that he's probably going to his death for what happened. So a kind of noble act of self-sacrifice to exit him from the screen to complete, but is meant to be a much more sympathetic character. Yeah, in the book, the conversation, so in the film, I believe, the conversation makes it clear that they're, like, getting files or something. So Devasher knows that they're getting, like, records or files or something. Mm -hmm. But, like, in the book, the way that that, and I don't know, I, I don't know if it was, like, purposeful between Abby and Tammy or I not. it was in the book, yeah. They, they, the way they talk about it is super vague to the point that, like, Devasher's like, oh, well, Avery, Avery's, um, you know, bad behavior is finally catching up with him. He's getting like pocket, well, he's getting his wallets getting taken, basically. Like, mm -hmm. they, so they think he thinks Devasher thinks it's very low stakes is what's going yeah, on. They, they barely in the condo, uh, and it, it is not like it is in the film where like he hears this conversation. He goes, "Oh, files, look, they're they're doing this with the FBI." Like he he doesn't nowhere near pieces all that together. Yeah, I think the conversation like in the book is, "Hey, is he out? Yeah, he passed out." right away okay open the door and we'll get the stuff and we'll go it's very yeah, yeah. pointedly in code simple kind of conversation because they know there's a risk that the line might be bugged and they know there's yeah, a risk again, that might be overheard and it's tammy she's yes. awesome tammy's awesome and it's abby abby too is here first and foremost in the book too she's playing a key role in this but it's part of the plan with mitch they and it's flipped in the book, right? Because Tammy's in the in the room with Avery. Abby's on the yeah, yeah. Abby's behind the Abby's behind the scenes copying. But it's all part of the plan she worked out with Mitch. They arranged a scenario where she's going away to be with her mother to get her out of Dodge, so the firm's not monitoring her, so that she can get there. It's all part of this elaborate ruse that they're pulling off, rather than just being this kind of impromptu thing. Yes. Um, but while this is happening, things are also starting to go a little bit rough with Mitch's plan. Ray's out of prison. Uh, and he, uh, Mitch arranged it with Tammy that, because again, the FBI is much more of a dick in the movie than they are in the book. Uh, they arranged it that he, Mitch, the Ray is smuggled away with, I think it's Tammy's husband, the Elvis impersonator. Yes. So, because the FBI is fully planning on to taking him back to prison the moment they get the files from Mitch. Douche move, but that's what they're planning on doing. Ray's able to smuggle out. But the problem is, is that the guard at the prison rather than an FBI agent like in the book, is on the Mafia payroll. And so rats out that aspect of the plot. Um, whereas if I remember correctly from the book, it's literally a senior FBI agent is just provided the, provided to the Mafia everything about Mitch and the information that Mitch is providing. So Mitch is yeah, truly it's, it's just, Yeah, it's a senior FBI agent that gets ratted out. But the but, uh, uh, director uh, Denton um, catches him. Yeah, catches him pretty quickly scene. after and is able to alert Mitch, hey, this happened, here's what, here's the risk you're in because of it, et cetera, et cetera. And Mitch basically goes, yeah, sorry, there's somebody uh, with a very cool car outside. Awesome. <laughs> um, Mitch basically goes, oh, 
okay, well the, F- the FBI is now completely inept. Yes. I'm going to use I'm going to use this as an excuse to tell the FBI to fuck off in the same way I'm telling the mafia to fuck off, and basically I'm just on the run from everybody. Yes. But that, that, that's Mitch's perspective, and the reason the Mitch kind of goes AWOL in the book, whereas in the, mo- in the movie, it's more that Mitch is just so damn moral that he doesn't feel like he can sully himself by working with either side, which is an interesting call. Yeah. Um, but in the, in the film, the FBI finds out that this guard leaked information. Uh, that, um, Wayne Terrence is able to put this together that Mitch may be in damn well trouble, and so calls him using the judge name which is the thing from the book he calls him yes. his name like judge terrence or something yep, which yep. puts mitch which puts mitch on notice that dude fucking run this is all happening so then he does into the cotton the, the chekhov's <laughs> cotton <laughs> the truck full of uh, of just cotton that you know is obviously just sits in uh, in downtown areas yeah and then we get the epic chase of wilford brimley running down tom cruise <laughs> Which Unbelievable. Proceeds, proceeds, it's Wilford Brimley. It's Hank from Breaking Bad, and it's yeah, yeah, a young uh, Hank. I, I forget the name. I forget the name of the actor who plays the blo- who plays the uh, blonde kind of assassin, but he's in a lot of things too. Um, the Nordic, uh, yeah, Tobin Bell. Yeah, he's in a lot. Um, they all proceed to try to run down Mitch through the streets, um, finding out various places about where he is by like unique contacts and Lamar Quinn being much more of a dick in the film than he apparently is in the book. Um, they corner him in this kind of warehouse and through a combination of Mitch being an acrobat, I told you that would come back up again. Um, and Devasher being a little bit too trigger happy. They arrange a situation of where Devasher shoots and kills one of his own agents. And then Mitch is able to get the drop on him and get running. Now, Mitch is still on the run and he's still in trouble, but knowing he's now heard that the mafia is in town we get probably the absolute single biggest change of the film in terms of adaptation from book to, script, book to script. Mitch decides to go to the mafia directly. Yes. Now, this has all been part of Mitch's plan to get all of his clients on board with his plan to turn over these billing records because Mitch wants to dot every I and cross every T as to maintaining attorney-client privilege. And he includes applying that to the friggin' mafia. So he, knowing the mafia is looking to kill him, goes straight into there to talk to two senior made men mafia members to reveal to them that the reason he's been talking with the FBI all this time is not to turn over their records, it's to turn over the billing records. So as to get the FBI down for overbilling, which the mafia may even be pissed about themselves. We see them complaining about their being overbilled. And he gets them to sign over confirmation that they're okay with him releasing the billing records with essentially the implied threat of, I've got the other records, they're on a slow boat to China, anything happens to me, they'll be turned over. So as to Is find that an expression check- on a slow boat to China? That is an expression. I've never heard that one before. You can't be a new one, Spencer. <laughs> I'm here for folksy expressions. Um... So Mitch lays this all out. The FBI's actually, the uh, mafia is apparently actually okay with this plan. Unbelievable. And signs onto the, the, F, the, the mafia doesn't just shoot him where he stands. I don't, I mean, the, the mafia in the book, he could never have approached with any of this. They would have said, he, the second he's getting off the rails with this operation, they would have killed Mitch. Mitch was 100% expendable to them. I mean, for one thing, they never would have even let him in the room because they would have assumed at a minimum he's wearing a wire. It doesn't even look yeah. like they searched him. He's still carrying his briefcase. <laughs> Wow, it's storming here. Yeah. Um, so Mitch arranges this plan, and kind of the next 
point of confrontation is Terrence shows up at Mitch's now ransacked house because, you know, Devasher and gang were looking for him and confronts Mitch of, dude, you screwed us. And, you know, honestly, from Terrence's perspective, Mitch did. Mitch really screwed them over. They gave him a whole chunk of change that got his brother out of jail with the promise of him turning over, you know, mafia records so they can bring down the freaking mob, which is the only thing they care about. And Mitch instead gave them a firm, which as Terrence points out, they'll just open a new firm. They probably have several other firms. This is not seriously hindering their efforts. But Mitch is maintaining his ethics. He's trying to keep his license. He doesn't want to be involved in any turning over of, you know, confidential protected client records. And from his perspective, he got his. He didn't accept the money anyway. What the fuck does the FBI care about that? Um, And he's done with all of them. And that they can get all the members of the firm on racketeering and mail fraud and corruption, RICO RICO charges. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I just want to put a little context for people. In the book, Mitch delivers enough information to bring down the largest mafia, the ongoing mafia in the country. It, the Chicago Mafia it, is dead from his he, efforts. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he takes down the ent- the mob that's running all of Chicago. He takes them down, steals a bunch of their money, steals the FBI money, hightails it to the Caribbean where he has an elaborate plan to live on the run in islands that are not even on the, on the map, that aren't a part of a government anywhere. He sets this all up. He executes. He crushes it. What does he do in the film? He delivers people on charges of overbilling and mail fraud. Well, really, really fascinating stuff. He, he does smuggle his brother out. His brother ends up on the boat in the Caribbean with Tammy, oddly enough, uh, yeah, in the film. That's so and, strange. And man. the $1.5 million. Um, so good for oh, 750000 That's all he's able man, to get really, out of Really, really fascinating. Overbilling. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. He, this is great. Get, So his brother gets out, Tammy and him enjoy $750,000 in a boat, thanks to a Banks smuggling them out. Banks really, particularly in the book, is one of the unsung heroes of the story. He's another guy that also makes a lot of things happen that couldn't have happened otherwise. Pretty minor character in the film. But the main thing we've been building up to for the film is this kind of relationship moment between Mitch and Abby. Of where they come back together, they bar their souls, Abby tells him about why she did what she did, Mitch has already previously explained himself to a certain degree, and they're able to start fresh on their own terms, free from anybody controlling them. They're able to load up their house, penniless broke again, other than whatever money Mitch has earned as a result of his job, and they're going to drive their broken-ass beater car as best as they can back to Boston and start a fresh new life. And this is a an effort and a heartwarming moment to end the story, is that the two of them overcome all of these outside pressures trying to change them. That's the thing key thing Abby says before is that you could have been like Avery. You could have been changed by the firm, changed by the law. You could have been corrupted like this. But now we can go our own way and start fresh and you can control right. your own destiny. You can you can take down a uh, a firm that is a front for the mafia and you can fuck over the FBI in the process and uh, you can not only can you keep your license, you can just Go start a new life in Boston. Which, admittedly, Mitch has a couple comments being rather sanguine about the idea that, but what future life they're going to lead, but it's going to be on their own terms, man, and that's I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the life he would have led in the book if he'd have tried that. He would have been shot at the first gas station he stopped at on the way to Boston. (laughs) He would have had nine cars (laughs) following him the moment he left the city limits. Unbelievable. Okay, so that's the firm, the film. Now... 
I think we've addressed a bit about how I don't think either of us like this as much as the book. Now, I would say that, honestly, and this is just different things we get out of what we get out of John Grisham, The Firm is probably my favorite of John Grisham's books. I think it's the most tightly written. I think it's the most exciting and, thrill- and thrillingly paced. But oh. I'm not going into it looking for a legal drama. It's not a legal drama. It's a thriller. But I think it's his best written thriller. So I quite like it. You are a little bit more middling about the book, I think it's fair to say. I am. I, I'm not saying that it's a bad book. I mean, it's a, it's a thriller book. And it's, mm-hmm. it's fine. I mean, read it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad book. What I'm saying is that the appeal for me, for Grisham, what makes me... Um, go back to his books over and over again. And what makes him stand out to me as opposed to other writers that, you know, are just kind of these like airport novels, like we've talked about Spencer, you know, James Patterson, Michael Conley, folks like that, is yep. that he really gets in the technicalities of courtroom dramas. He, he walks you through in a lot of his books. Oh man, here's the intricacies of jury selection, or here's the intricacies of like discovery and stuff like that. I find fascinating. And I think that separates Grisham's work from a lot of these other, this, this book, while it is good, I don't I don't know what well, separates the firm from like a say a run of the mill or, or or above average James Patterson novel. That's what my question for you. And I, I I would I've enjoyed it better than James Patterson just because I think it's more tightly written than a lot of his work and I think it's successful as what it is. But I will absolutely agree that this is not the kind of legal drama that John Grisham is legendary at in terms of courtroom procedure, courtroom drama, setting all that up. In part because Mitch isn't a trial attorney. He's a he's a transactional tax attorney, and so we don't see Mitch in court. Almost at all, I don't think, in the book whatsoever. There's some references to it vaguely, but it's really not the part of the job we ever see Mitch do. So that's left out. But in terms of a film, I think we've gotten some slight hints that you're not too up on this being a very successful adaptation of this of this book. This movie is... there's All right, so it's, uh, it's poorly cast. It's poorly written. The plot doesn't make any sense. It's too long, and it's um, it is. Uh, I think the cinematography is very very poor. The music is bad. I mean, it's the same three piano chords over and over again at every scene change. I mean, th- this movie is bad from from casting, plot, writing, but also bad in the minutia. Everything about this movie sucks. I'm just saying that. I don't mean to be too harsh here. I'm just saying, <laughs> everything about the movie is terrible. So, uh, Lee, as a professional critic, how do you feel about the fact that Roger Ebert gave this three stars out of four? Well, here's the thing. Here's what I remember about The Firm. I remember that I, I have always been really interested in, this is going to shock you, Spencer, No. Oh. films that I care about being successful and people loving them. So, I'll give an example. When I was a young kid, really loved Jurassic Park. I thought Jurassic Park was a great movie. Excellent. So I, this might be a little weird, but I actually followed Jurassic Park's box office numbers because I wanted it to do really well. And so I knew it was like, it was like number one, number one, number one. You know what movie knocked Jurassic Park from number (laughs) one? No. Was the fucking firm. It was the firm. (laughs) So I I go into this movie remembering like a 12 year old me thinking, oh man, this this The Firm movie must be pretty good because it knocked Jurassic Park from the number one spot. And what do I get? Two hours and 34 minutes, I'll never get back, of a, a trash movie that was poorly cast, poorly written, and poorly executed. Say what you feel, man. Say what you feel. I'm so <laughs> delighted to see you just hate something. We've never had that before. Closest I mean, we ever the, got... Hmm? Yeah, I, I, 
I struggle to find a good casting decision. Tell me, tell me somebody who was properly cast in this film. Gene Ackman. I think Gene okay. Ackman is, is successful enough as Avery Tall. I can picture Gene Ackman as Avery Tall Toller from the book. It's close enough that it works. And again, they go a different direction with the character. They massively expand him. But I think he works pretty well okay. Other than him. Other than him. Uh, it starts I'm, to get tough quick. I'm going through the list. Um, Lamar Quinn is a zero in the film, so no. Hal Holbrook is Oliver Lambert's wasted. Ed Harris is off. Holly Hunter is a good actress, but doesn't work as Tammy. Whew, I'm going down the list. I'm going to, the, the two mob bosses at the end, because that's all they ever work in their careers is mob that's bosses. That's true. That's those are the two. Like it's almost like you call the studio and go, "I need two mob guys," and those guys show up. <laughs> like, but yeah, it's like if there was the Razzies for casting, this thing would have like been an all timer. It would have been. It would have been number one. I, I just feel like there's a lot. I mean, like obviously, like I'm trying to be funny with it, but I do think this is like one of the. There is a lot to hate in this film. There's a lot to dislike. Me, I don't hate and it. And I'm astonished that it did so well in the box office. This it's, movie made a lot of money. I mean, it's a matter of several factors more successful than any, any other adaptation of John Grisham's work. Most of his works didn't make even $100 million at the box office. This made most of the way to $300 million by comparison. It was a very successful film. And I'm, I view it as more mediocre than just bad in the way you do because... To the degree I can divorce it from the book, to the degree I can forget the book even exists, I think it is successful enough at what it wants to do in terms of just being a completely different focus and a completely different medium than the book actually is. The film doesn't really give much of a shit about what the book's about. It doesn't really care much of a shit about the characters and how they're characterized. It wants to do its own thing. And that's very much about the kind of conflict that a young person goes through in maintaining a relationship and maintaining their own personal ethics when confronted with what the actual real world has to bring. That's a much more baseline theme. That's actually the key theme of The Rainmaker, oddly enough, rather than uh, this book and this and this subject matter. But it is a, it's well-trod ground the film wants to explore. The Rainmaker, both in its film and its, and its book, does it so much better in terms of addressing those themes. But... I can respect a certain element of the heartwarming changes to this film working enough for me that I can tolerate it, even if I feel the overall result's pretty mediocre. And I cannot dispute you, dispute what you're saying, that the casting is rough. I mean, as, now, go ahead, dude, keep going. As the retooled version of Mitch McDeer, it's not Mitch McDeer, it's Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise plays Tom Cruise okay. I'll say that. Uh <sighs> Jeanine Tipplehorn does fine for a redone version of Abby McDeer. I think her acting doesn't sell enough of the expanded role, but whatever. Holly Hunter's fine, but that's kind of the problem I run into all of this, is that the book has so many characters that resonate with me even years after I read it. None of these stand out from the page as being in any way particularly special, other than maybe Gene Hackman doing a decent enough job, but still not enough to really just, like, I'm going to think about that character as an archetype or in situations going forward in my life. I now I would like to talk about the casting of the follow-on effort, the 2012 television series The Firm, which I didn't know existed before we did this. Now, I'm not recommending you watch this television series. My, my understanding is that it's terrible, it's horrible. I will say that Josh Lucas was cast as Mitch McDeer. Makes Ooh. a lot more sense. That is a on lot point. More sense. That is on point. Abby, Abby McDeer, Molly Parker, of Deadwood fame. Also, good choice. Tammy, Juliet Lewis, 
I, Much closer I, on point. Ray McDear, played by a guy named, a guy named uh, Callum Reaney, Callum Keith Reaney, who, you know, it looks like he's got, he looks like he's like 55, but it looks like he's got a thousand wrinkles, uh, wrinkles and shock gray hair. And he looks like he's weathered and he's just living on the beach Ray. somewhere. That's it's Ray. Perfect. Like, the, and it's, this is not hard stuff. The, 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 like, this was a mediocre television show um, that didn't have a big budget. And they cast these people. The casting was factors better than this blockbuster uh, film. I think they were casting actors rather than casting characters when it came to planning this out. Is that they wanted big names, and I think those big names did make this a more successful film in terms of box office, just because it had name recognition. Doesn't mean they were really as perfect for the roles. Um, but any other big changes booked to screen that you want to talk about? We've talked about quite a few, I feel like. I think the biggest one's just the ending. The ending's so completely different it's like it's a two different two different you know, completely different no i think i've hit them all the way i want i do have a real lawyer fake lawyer for you please um okay question for you um and i'm going to ask you a question and then i'm going to say even we're, you're going to probably educate me but then i'm also going to tell you just what what i think about the question so question is if you are working for a firm that yep. is a front for the mafia, that is an illegal enterprise, that is mm-hmm. doing illegal activities. Yes. And you, as a par- as a lawyer there, decide to work with the FBI and this is you my question, yeah. and you get you give like you get enough to give the FBI to help in their investigation to take down this criminal enterprise that is connected to this huge mafia enterprise that is like killing people and selling drugs and doing all these awful things. If you are helping the FBI, are you really going to get disbarred for no. giving over client records? No. <laughs> like, no. is that a legitimate concern no. from Tom Cruise here? No, 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 no. This is something that every single adaptation that ever, every film, every story that ever talks about attorney-client privilege gets wrong. This isn't some kind of situation of like, you know, a journalist is willing to go to jail to protect their sources no matter the circumstances. Attorney-client privilege. Good ex- that is a very good comparison for how they're trying to, per- to, to portray this, right? As, as if it's like, die on the hill, the last thing you'll ever do. Like, take my client records from my cold, dead hands type of deal. No. Some people have argued that it may have used to be that, but in... It, it, in my dad's generation and countless generations before that, it's been well understood that the it's exception to it, the privilege they're talking about here is called attorney-client privilege. That when you're discussing matters of representation with a client, those communications are privileged and those that privilege is held by the client. The client's the only person that can waive that privilege. The attorney can't. It's foundational. There's almost no exceptions to it. It is axiomatic in terms of taught attorneys that you have to be zealous in terms of protecting client confidentiality, and particularly when it comes to client communications. But attorneys, day two law school are taught, the exception is when the client representation applies to an ongoing criminal conspiracy. Attorneys are not obliged to keep confidence when it comes to performing illegal acts. Attorneys aren't expected to perform illegal acts. And when it comes to being involved in this kind of you know, criminal enterprise, those communications are no longer privileged because any one of them would inherently be in furtherance of that criminal enterprise. So no, you wouldn't be disbarred. The attorney-client privilege wouldn't apply. But I can't blame the film too much for this. The book kind of almost flirts with it being wrong a little bit too at times. Not as, not as wrong. Mitch is more focused on the fact that he's going to be fucked by the by the friggin' by the friggin' mafia if he does what what they want him to do. 
Um, but so many other films or stories get this wrong. And just assuming that attorneys are robots that are required under no circumstances, no matter how heinous their client is, to ever reveal information. That's just not how attorney-client privilege works. It just amazes me that they that the assumption here is that the FBI is so connected that they can simply walk into a state penitentiary uh, and yeah, sign out, sign out a sign out somebody who is convicted of murder, and just take them out of there. Just walk in, sign a form, and take them out. But they cannot convince a bar association <laughs> to keep a guy as sir, part of the sir, bar sir, who sir, helps sir. with an investigation that takes down the mafia. That's, I what, assure I'm, that's you, what I'm supposed to believe from this film. The Massachusetts Bar Association <laughs> has legions more power and authority than the great state of Tennessee. I think that is beyond dispute. The FBI would have no pull there. No, none. none at all. <laughs> now, it, and honestly, it's one of the, it's one of the, when I read that in the book, I loved it because it's something I'd never thought about before about the limits of FBI power. The idea that no, I like that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That the, the Bill of Rights is a thing that states have authority that the federal government can't interfere with within their own sovereign domains, and the FBI can't overstep that. The FBI works at intersections; it works on, on state lines and international actions, and, and, and interstate and international actions. But it can't deal with the idea of something that's purely in-state legal situation. They don't have the jurisdiction to interfere with that or deal with that. That is such an interesting thought. That age eighteen, nineteen, when I first read this. I'd never pondered before. I thought that was a very good detail as well, and I thought it was really cool how Grisham got creative. And, okay, well, if the FBI really went to the wall and the director said this has to happen, but they have to break somebody, convicted murder, by the way, out of a state penitentiary, how would they do it? Well, they would have to put pressure, state, they would have to use national contacts to put pressure on a state institution. How do you do that? Through the U.S. Senator. That's the connection to yep. the state, to the state government, and boom, it flows that way. I thought it was a really creative yes. and interesting way that Grisham did it. And then that the fact that they there was no legal way to get Ray out. I mean, there was no appeal. There was no nothing. This guy was convicted. It was it, That was it. The only way to do it is to get the warden to break him out. <laughs> <laughs> and I love like, it. And that's, I, and that's a detail they just completely throw away. And I love it's the warden himself that participates in the breakout, too. It's like, Ray's already confused as shit. He has no idea why the guards are helping and moving me out. And then he comes to the outside fence, and the freaking warden's standing there. It's like, what the hell did my brother do? I don't know what's yeah, going on. The warden is overseeing the jailbreak. Yes. It's just so, a, it's a really, really cool detail that Grisham fleshes out in the book. It's very well done. And they, of course, in the movie, completely scrap it. And they sign him out as if he's like, you know, he has to go to the principal's office or something. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I personally find that people convicted of manslaughter that are apparently doing at least 20 years in prison are probably subject to that kind of standard of review. Really? I mean, don't you yeah, think? Just, just I mean, sign, yeah, just hand them the clipboard. I regularly check out Max, uh, Max security prisoners on weekends. Just let them run free. Take them out to the ocean for a bit. Unbelievable. Uh, okay, real lawyer, fake lawyer. Um, you got another one? You, yeah, yeah. But this is, you know, I kind of touched on this earlier, but um, all right. If you're Mitch and you're getting the pitch, I'm on the book pitch. I'm not, I don't book, care about this book, movie. Book pitch, which it's the book they, pitch. They drop the, the salary front. first in the book too, which is key. Cause they, that's the key seduction right there. Yeah. They give them the salary and they start talking about, you know, you're going to get the, the BMW. It's a BMW in the book. Um, and you get the, you, the house, you get the, the house, but the how they explain 
We are the, bro- in essence, the broker. We will sell the loan to a local bank. It's and, independent. Yeah, and they explain like we we get the low, we get the rate as low as we can. Like they work with some banks that are clients or or that they work with, so that they can get like the lowest rate that's yeah. like legal. You know, like they, it's more of a reasonable pitch. The house part of it. Yeah. At what point during the pitch from the book, you young lawyer coming out of law school, young Spencer. Are, at what point are you saying no? What point for purely the book? It's a hard thing yeah. in the book, and that's intentional yeah. with Don yeah. Grissom in terms of how he styles in the book because it's meant to be seductive. Yeah. We're meant we're meant to be. Or he gives us early on enough to be uncomfortable just how much they know, how much they've got a full dossier about this guy, and how about he's the only guy they're recruiting this year. Um, but it's meant to be seductive because it is for the character. It's everything he could want, particularly with the colossal chip on Mitch's shoulder that he has from being born poor. So for me, it would be, if they've specifically sought me out, if they've specifically offered me all of these things, I'd probably be seeing stars too. It'd be hard to think logically and actually ponder for a second no-nothing, 30-attorney Memphis firm, how can the hell can they afford to do this? That's the thing is, like, as I was reading it, I was like, okay, like, um, I'm going to compliment you here, Spencer, so just just take a seat because I know you're not good with that. But um, you're, like, you have, like, one of the better moral compasses of, like, any of my friends that I know. And so I was thinking about, like, okay, if Spencer was in this situation, and I, I kept going, well, hold on, he'd probably say yes. Well, hold on, he'd probably say And even trying to think about you in that situation, I was like, hell, Spencer may end up employed by this damn. I couldn't figure out, like, a a part of the um, a part of the pitch or part of the events where someone, mm-hmm. even with a very strong moral compass who is logical and questions these things, would have ever, like, stopped and been like, no. I think you'd have just been, like, you'd have been, like, in downtown Memphis, like, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> like, and, you'd, have been, you'd have been right there with Mitch. And it's one of the great themes of the book that it's meant to be almost like a biblical seduction. And Mitch even calls them out on it later about, why did I do this? Why did I get in this? You did it for the fucking money. It's, it was meant to always be so perfectly tailored to him that no one in his situation would say no. They yeah. effectively denied him a choice by how perfect they made it. I'll tell you what would have screwed me up is they said we're recruiting one person this year. That would have set you off? Oh, my ego. I would have been, oh, my oh. God. I'd been like, well, of course. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh. you must have got the rap sheet on me, my friend, Yeah, because they they're they recruiting me and no one else. I will take it. This is one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that when they said you were the only one, at what point do you make them a counteroffer? Like, oh, I'm the only one you're recruiting this year? You know, I think three hundred sounds a little bit be- a little bit better to start. <laughs> you know, I don't know, man. I I think I would have been so I, I more so probably than you. I think I would have been so snowed. Like <laughs> I don't know that I would have done a lot of. I, I think I would have just been a super basic dude in the situation. I'd have been like, yes, yes, uh, yes, and uh, I'd be like you. on the phone on the way home, like to my wife or my mom or my dad or something. <laughs> like, you'll never believe it. We've hit the lottery. Like I don't think I would have. I, I mean, the FBI would have been like, you're working for a crooked firm, and I would have been like, what? This firm? I would. I would have never well, suggested it. One thing I can tell you, and I've I've had this happen before in my life. I never would have accepted their offer there on site. Mitch doesn't either, but I can tell you exactly from knowing my personality, I never would have accepted, I never would have shaken their hand and accepted their offer then. I always, no matter how star it is, I would have gone home and I would have talked to dad or thought about it before I went in. So you, okay, you wouldn't have said yes on site, but when you would have said home, yes 
Yeah, ride back. Yeah, exactly. What what would have what what like what was the thing you'd say no to? Like even just trying to think through how well, a no how you'd get to a no. Well, it's all it's also practically too. Just the other places he's looking for a job. I mean, the other places we see in the film are New York, Chicago, L.A. That's the other three we hear about. Of those yeah. three, honestly, I'd prefer to live in Memphis if they're going to pay me better anyway. Yeah, I would too. But then I also got thinking about okay, now. I'm placing you in Mitch's situation in like the early nineties and <laughs> yeah. like, like imagine if you get out of law school now and like what lawyers are being offered now, if you got that offer, I mean, you would have thought <laughs> like, cause like, Oh God, <laughs> nobody's getting those like, Hey, we're going to pay for three country club memberships and give you a couple grand to buy suits and like all that crap. You know? no, God, I mean, the, again, the biggest one, one that just would never exist nowadays is when they offer to pay off his loans. Oh yeah, like, that was like yeah. Just bring them in. We'll just we'll just pay off the student loans. No biggie. I mean, nowadays that's like you know they're just volunteering to pay off two hundred something thousand dollars just effortlessly as a signing bonus. It's like that doesn't happen. I mean, it's nowadays the thing of where a they wouldn't have even brought him in as associate. He'd be brought in as like a staff attorney kind of thing. B they'd be offering him like particularly for Memphis, like fifty five sixty thousand dollars a year. Uh, see, none of the perks, none of the house, none of the everything else. It, yeah, maybe this existed at some point in the law, but it's one I've never had an opportunity to grow up or work in. And maybe that's because it's better reserved for the page and mafia-backed firms than in real life. Yeah, I just thought, like, Grisham, obvi- I mean, obviously Grisham went to yep. law school, and he was yep. a young lawyer. And, like, I just think he wrote it in a way that it was, like, it was, like, a pretty, like, interesting like psychological exercise into like, mm-hmm. okay, what, like what, what would these young lawyers do? And that's why, like when I was reading, it, I was like, wow, this is like a really interesting thought experiment. Like, Hey, hey Spencer, isn't this your worst effing nightmare? Because it's like, yeah, of course it is. Cause you would have just said yes. And you'd have been working for the mafia. <laughs> oh yeah. And then as they say, they purposely give you real cases. They purposely pay you well. And it's only years in that you suddenly find out you you're in too deep, son. You can't leave. That's meant to be hard. That's meant to be a situation which people legitimately feel trapped. That's why they do it that way. Uh, two questions for you. Yeah, far away. Uh, first is a, is a pure text question, but I've talked before about some of my favorite characters, book and movie. On you. Favorite character book, favorite character movie. Okay, yeah. Favorite favorite character from the book is, um, I'm going to say Tammy. Um, cause Tammy is such a G. I mean, she like, she makes, she's like, I think I described it. Like she's the thing that makes it go in the book. Every like Mitch, like Mitch is like playing like the puppet master. Mm -hmm. Right. And he like, you know, there's all these moments where his wife is like, like Gabby's talking to somebody. He's like, trust Mitch. Mitch is always in control. Mitch isn't always in control. Tammy's in control. Tammy is making this thing happen. Um, and I also just really enjoyed her dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. I thought she was very, just very interesting character. Now, now honorable mention obviously does go to Eddie Lomax because Eddie Lomax is also a very good character. In very the book. solid. Um, it, it, one thing, I, one thing I love about Tammy is that throughout, like the back fifth of the book, she's Mitch's point of contact with the FBI. Mitch doesn't talk with the FBI anymore. He has Tammy do it. And Tammy develops this kind of weird rapport with uh, with Wayne Terrence as a result of that, which is really a lot of fun scenes. In the film, um, give, give me one. You got to give me one. Yeah, I'm going deep cut here. I'm going to go Barry A. Banks. Barry A. Banks is the guy who um, who tells owner. them, "Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, I like him. Okay." Uh, and then honorable mention, maybe. Um, 
Who's the guy who complains about the overbilling? I don't. They ever even name him? It's it's his, one of his legitimate that clients. guy. But that, that's how that deep I've got. That's how deep I've got to go with the film because I okay. just don't. I did not. I'm not going to say that the very many of these characters are very good. Okay. Uh, and the last question from me: You've read a lot of John Grisham now. You've explored countless different characters and countless different worlds and countless different areas of the law. Yeah. From the various kinds of attorney you have seen, which one would you most want to be if you were an attorney in terms of the areas of the law that they practice? You've got, say, uh, Rudy works in, in complex civil commercial litigation. If you've got, say, uh, I'm suddenly blanking on the name of the main character in A Time to Kill. What's the name? What's the name? What's the name of the main character? Oh, uh, um, uh, look, I, I don't. I, I yeah, I don't know. I, I know it, but I've forgotten it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll right look, look it up while, right now while we're talking. Um, but and then you've got uh, Mitch here as a tax attorney. Um, Jack, J Jake Brigantz. Jake Brigantz. Yeah, who, who's who's working criminal in terms of murder trials. You've got different ones in the client. You've got different ones in the Pelican Brief. Which attorney would you be if you were practicing law? Um, all right, so so all of them are portrayed, and this is I'm, I'm sure this is like John Grisham telling you why he's now a writer. All of them are, are portrayed as people who work way too hard. I mean, just like an unseen amount of hours, all of them. Damn straight. Um, so in, in some respects, none. Because I don't, I don't want to do any of that. Like it, I don't like this kind, like this, I, this romantic concept of working seventy hours a week never clicked with me under any circumstance. I'm holding your feet to the coals, though. But I will say, if I gotta be one, I'm gonna say, uh, I'm gonna say, uh, Mitch. If, Mitch, if it was a legit operation, right? But mm -hmm. I guess it's not. So I guess I, ha I would have to say Jake, and I would say Jake because Jake. Jake's destiny here, and I got to get John Grisham on the phone. So Spencer, if you could just make if you could make the call, I'll, I'll talk on. to him here in a second. Um, I need to talk. To, I need to talk to John Grisham because Jake Brigance. I don't know. He needs to do another. He is going to be the district attorney of that town. Like he needs to be the mm. district attorney of that town. He is Mister Man about town. He is every morning out at the diner with the people, eating his grits and toast, and yes. getting to know everybody. I, that, I, now that I. I have some romantic uh, feelings about, but I think you're, I think the point of your question was what type of law would you like to be practicing? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I, I, you know, like this sort of like sit at your desk and do like the research and the tax work mm -hmm. that, that has some, that, appeals um, to you. that has some appeal to me. Um, but, you know, I think there is something to um, the performative aspect of, of courtroom work that I think is pretty cool and that uh, that Jake does pretty well and that like my ego tells me I'd be good at when in reality I'd probably just blow but like I don't know like I <laughs> just like a, I'm you reading have a stand up reading background Jake. you'd be great at in the performance I'm of reading work. Jake and I'm like you know what? I could do that I could ladies and gentlemen of the jury like I could I could totally do that Damn straight. Now, yeah. I, I, I read you. I mean, in terms of circumstances, Jake Brigance is the better gig because he's working the least hard at the start of the story of any of the other characters. He's just a small small town attorney getting by. Yeah, and it, by the way, his least his least less hard than the rest is still at work at like 6.30 in the morning. Oh, yeah. He's just, you know, <laughs> he, he takes off every now and then certain days. He leaves at like 6 o'clock in the evening. It's great for lawyers. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, that's my uh, that's my take. Um, now I'm not done reading Grisham, so I may text you in like two weeks and be like, "No, actually, this is the type of lawyer I'd like to be." Um, but yeah, this was a lot of fun, Spencer. I enjoyed going through the firm. Obviously, um, had some strong feelings here. Just a few. Uh, this will this will up. go down. This will go down in history, I think, in Mangum Talks TV. 
um, as maybe one of the harshest I've been uh, on any piece of media that we've ever reviewed. The closest you've ever came was the three paragraphs of the 10 pages of guards, guards that you read before you stopped reading. That's the closest you've ever came to just this level of negative review. That's true. Our sister podcast, Mangum Reads, I did show up one time, one time only, in and out, boom, boom, in and out, real quick. I did 10 pages of one of the books, didn't like it, uh, showed up and did a little bit of the podcast with the fellas, but that is, that's probably it. I mean, I, I do understand the absurdity of, I have uh, for hours on this podcast channel, defended season eight of Game of Thrones, <laughs> and then just came on here and for two straight hours trashed a, trashed a 20-year-old Tom Cruise movie. But you know what? That's what you get, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, that's how I feel. And we enjoy doing it, sir. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, this I, I don't think we want to stop John Grissom necessarily. I think we're just placing it on pause because we have another great show that we're starting up from here. Yeah, we'll be back at some point uh, doing the John Grisham adaptations. It's probably a stopgap between shows. But uh, our next venture, our next foray will be. Uh, the Nevermore podcast where we talk more about the Nevers. Check it out. Go subscribe right now. We will be with you every week to review HBO's The Nevers. I'm looking forward to it, Spencer. And we'll see you then. Till then, man.